Hello, and welcome to the podcast version of COS Live. You can watch the original live broadcast on Convention of States Rumble, YouTube, Facebook, and X. And now, here's COS Live. Dr. Ferris, thank you for being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Minority Member, members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I am the co-founder of the Convention of States Project, a lawyer, been in practice now my 47th year. Uh, I've argued dozens of cases, uh, constitutional cases, uh, in appellate courts, including the Supreme Court of Ohio, two cases in the Supreme Court of the United States. And I have litigated an Article 5 case on the amendment process um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, in a case that made it to the Supreme Court of the United States on the question of the extension of time on the Equal Rights Amendment. I represented four Washington state legislators in that case. So I'm one of the few lawyers in the country who've actually litigated an Article 5 case. Um, I've also taught constitutional law at Patrick Henry College. Uh, two of my former students are now state solicitor generals, Indiana and West Virginia, and five of my students have clerked for the Supreme Court of the United States. I, I do that to, to say that a lot of lawyers claim to be constitutional lawyers, and my question to people making that claim is, show me the number of laws you had declared unconstitutional, and then we can talk. And so um, the constitutional issues in this case, or in, in this case, sorry, we're used to this, uh, in this legislation um, can be addressed today perhaps by asking three questions. Why did the founders create the process that we're seeking to use here? The second question is, do the current circumstances that we face in our country align with that, that purpose and that process? And third, is the process safe? And I'll briefly address all three of those questions. It was at the end of the constitutional convention process um, in the last week where George Mason observed that the proposed version of amending the Constitution that was in place at the time had a blind spot. And that is, all amendments were going to be proposed by Congress and all would be ratified by the state. And his speech to, to the convention basically said, Congress is never going to propose an amendment that limits its own power. And the founders in that day probably said something like, we hold that truth to be self-evident. If they were around today, they would say like, duh, uh, and that's the same thing. And they immediately proposed the change to Article 5 that we now see, to give the states the ability to propose amendments for the express purpose of limiting the power of the federal government if the federal government gets out of hand. That's the reason we had it. It was one more layer of the checks and balances process. We don't want any agency in government. We don't want any level of government having too much power. And the ultimate ability to amend the Constitution essentially unilaterally, not by one state, but by ultimately three-fourths of the states, was a check on the misuse of federal power. That's why we have this process. So that takes me to the second question. Do our current circumstances align with that purpose? Well, I could give you a couple hours worth of reasons that that would be true, but I'm going to do three and do them briefly. First, the debt. We are experiencing debt that's in the 30s of trillion dollars, and if, if it's not exactly there today, it'll be 40 trillion all too soon. We're, it's just out of, out of control by anybody's uh, estimation, and that's calling the debt that's on the books. If you take off the book debts, like all the money that's been borrowed from the Social Security system and not paid back, the actual number is closer to $150 trillion, an unimaginable number. Um, 
And we've done that by spending for things that are not within the competence of the federal government. And that all comes back to a Supreme Court case. If you want to know which case caused all this, the Butler did it. It's United States versus Butler, where the court said federal spending was not limited to the enumerated powers. If federal spending was not limited, was, excuse me, limited to the enumerated powers, we would essentially have no federal debt. As certainly, we would certainly not have the kind of federal debt that we're looking at today. I'll take a second example, education. Uh, years ago, I was litigating a homeschool case in New York, and I walked from the State Department of Education, past the city offices, past the regional office called BOCES, down to the federal uh, offices uh, where the litigation was going on. And I realized that every single level of government that I had just passed had a Department of Education. We do not get more services for kids. My dad was a retired uh, public school principal. We don't get more services for kids by having multiple departments of education. We get more bureaucrats. The founders never gave education as an enumerated power to the federal government. They take our money from the states, they take it to Washington, D.C., they send a small portion of that money back to the states with strings and effectively run the educational programs of the schools. About, on average, 5% of school funding comes from the federal government and 55% of the rules come the, from the federal government. It is an out-of-control situation. If we returned that whole process, took it away from the federal government, reduced the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, we would have that problem solved on that particular issue. We're getting the feds out of it and get back to just state and local government dealing with education issues. Third example, one that's a special favorite of mine ever since I uh, ended up getting an LLM of Public International Law from the University of London, is the treaty process has just gone awry in our country. Our country adopts about 200 treaties a year. 95% of them never are sent to the Senate for ratification. Some years a little more, some years a little less, but the vast majority of treaties are signed either by the President alone or by the Secretary General of the U, no, not the Secretary General, but the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. or some other diplomatic person. We call them executive agreements. That's a term that the Supreme Court and the State Department collectively made up. In international law, all executive agreements are treaties. But we do not treat treaties the way we do. The reason I, I do this, you, I'm sure you're getting in, uh, inquiries from constituents about the upcoming WHO treaty that President Biden has indicated that he's going to sign as an executive agreement in April. And that treaty turns jurisdiction over from the states over pandemics to the federal government under the general supervision of the United Nations World Health Organization. And so that's the way treaties work. Under the Necessary and Proper Clause, once a treaty's been adopted, then the power to implement that treaty goes to the agency that adopted it. That's the federal government, that's Congress. And so what we saw in the COVID pandemic, the states had the ability to vary their processes. We lose that under this treaty and we lose it without so much as a vote in the Senate. We can stop the federal government from doing this end run around the provision of the Constitution that says all treaties should be ratified by the US Senate by a simple fix that over, effectively overrides the case that the Supreme Court made on this, which was called United States versus Pink. So 
those are three examples of how we need to impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, impose uh, uh, limitations on the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. The third topic you'll hear about from others under the application that's before you is term limits on federal officials. I'm not gonna address that separately. I'm gonna address just briefly the third question, is this process safe? The original process that we were given was checks and balances against the federal government, but there are checks and balances built into this process that prevent this process from going awry as well. In order to have a convention, you have to have two thirds of the states agree on a topic for the convention. Uh, the application that's in front of you has been passed verbatim by 19 other states. Um, and Kansas is maybe 20, but that's a long story. Um, and, and so, but 19 for sure. And, and so there's no question about aggregation, but we can't add that to other treaties that have been, or excuse me, not treaties, but applications have been uh, proposed over time. There have been 450 applications for a convention over the course of history. The vast majority of them are still valid and in effect. And if 34 applications on any old topic was okay, then we'd have had a convention a long time ago. That's never been the case. We've always had the rule that you have to have agreement on the topic. So when we get to 34 states, agreement on the topic, then you can have a convention. Well, what's to prevent the convention from changing the rules at the time? The question arises because the, the argument's usually made, the original constitutional convention was a runaway convention. They didn't stick to their topic. Why will this happen? Well, that's just simply a historical lie. That's not what happened. I wrote the definitive answer to that argument in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. You can get it online for free. I have a few copies here today if you'd like to see them uh, or have them. Um, and it's called Defying Conventional Wisdom, How the Original Constitutional Convention Was Not a Runaway. And um, uh, if you put my last name, Ferris, in and the, uh, the, the phrase Defying Conventional Wisdom, you can get it for free on the internet from the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. The basic answer is the states called the convention, and here's what the states told their, their delegates to do. Render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. The phrase, only amend the Articles of Confederation, comes from a, a resolution by Congress that has the power and effect of a National Pickle Week resolution. It was basically Congress giving their opinion because under the Articles of Confederation, Congress didn't have any power to call any conventions. They had very limited power. And so the states called the convention, they told them to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union, and that's what they did. The idea that they were only supposed to amend the articles is a flat historical lie that defames the constitution of the United States. People who call themselves constitutionalists on the one hand, and then claim the constitution was a result of a runaway convention, are engaged in intellectual schizophrenia at a pretty deep level. The checks and balances say, Start with two-thirds, agreement on the subject matter, and then you go to the convention. It's one state, one vote. It can't be proportional representation because that's a Congress, not a convention. A convention of states, every convention of states that has ever been held in this country, and there have been many, it's always one state, one vote. In fact, it's a term of international law. Every international convention is one state, one vote. We call them states in international law. And, and that phrase carries on. It's one state, one vote. That's a structural change. But 26 states, a majority, at the convention can approve a proposed text. Then it goes to the state legislatures. 38 states have to ratify. Now, that means if a single house in 13 states vote no, it's over. 
you lose because um, it requires 38. So 13, one, one house going off and saying, no, we don't want this, that defeats that state. So 13 no votes in 13 chambers, we're done. The only way you can do this is if you have a sensible amendment because it is very hard to do something good in this process, very hard. Not impossible, but very hard. It is impossible to do anything crazy. Just you can't get it done. The structure that's in place is so solid. You cannot do something crazy. Now, there are two kinds of groups that are saying the opposite. One on the far right, one on the far left. On the far right, they're basically functional anarchists. They don't trust any government whatsoever. They don't trust this government. They don't trust their city council. They say every government's Ill illegitimate. They're all doing the wrong thing. It's all bad. We can't run a country with functional anarchists in control. Just doesn't work. And they're, they're saying that the checks and balances won't work because they don't trust any government at any point in time. The other group on the left, they're people that love centralized government. The more centralized, the better it is, including world government. They love things like turning over our, our pandemics to the federal government under the supervision of the UN. And so those people are, are also singing this runaway convention. You can't control it. You can't control it if your goal is functional anarchy. You can't control it if your goal is massive centralized government. Their arguments flow from their premises. Their premises are dangerous to this country. We do not want functional anarchy. We want a nation that works. And we do not want centralized runaway government. And that's what we've got in Washington, D.C. right now. We need to do the kind of government that works, that is a constitutional republic where there are limited powers at each level of government and there are functional checks and balances. The founders of this country gave every member of this committee and every member of this legislature authority to act. With that authority to check the power and abuse of the federal government, I suggest that you have the moral responsibility to do so. I would encourage you to vote favorably in this legislation. And I'd be happy to answer any questions that anybody might have. Thank you for your testimony. Um, Representative, <coughs> with a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Attorney Ferris, for being here today. Certainly um, appreciate you uh, bringing you know, your testimony with regard to HJR 3. Um, I want to say you brought up a lot of different points. Um, some that, you know, specifically uh, relate to the joint resolution, but then some uh, that don't necessarily, but also just provides um, some imagery so that we all could understand. So again, just want to say that I appreciate that. Um, you brought up a point about, is this safe? Um, and I appreciate that question, but it led me to start thinking um, in another direction. So my question for you is, um, with regard to like the state legislatures, do you know um, if within this bill um, there are any safeguards so that we can kind of um, oversee some of the processes and all of that um, as it relates to um, the conventions and actions and things like that? So any input you could provide, I would appreciate. Certainly. There are a number of states that have passed uh, pieces of legislation. Some are doing it as, as legislative rules that give the state legislature authority to control the actions of your delegates. They are your, meaning yours, not just Ohio's, they are Ohio state legislature's 
delegates. They represent you. And so just like at the original convention, at the original constitutional convention, New York gave its delegates the instruction, all three of you have to be present to vote for New York. If you're not all there, you don't get a vote. Two of them got mad in July and left. Yates and another guy left Alexander Hamilton there. Hamilton debated, he never voted again because the state's instructions wouldn't let them do it. Delaware gave their uh, delegates instructions that said, you can't agree to a government that denies the equality of the states. That's where the US Senate, the compromise came in is because Delaware couldn't vote for it unless there was equality of the states in some important fashion that they thought that the Senate was the fulfillment of that, and that's how we got an important factor in how we got the bicameral legislature. So yes, states can and are in this process giving their delegates instructions. Uh, you can give a variety of instructions. We have model rules, we have model legislation on that, and yes, you can control them entirely. Other questions for the witness? Representative Brown. Thank you, Chair. <clears throat> Article 5 of the Constitution states, and I'm just going to read it so that there's no mistake. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for uh, proposing amendments which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes. Now, if I heard you correctly, you were talking about the convention will be limited to a topic or certain topics. Doesn't this language fail to impose any limitations on any topic which may be raised in a constitutional convention under Article 5? The question is, what constitutes a call? I'm a constitutional originalist, and so the question, the, the, the phrase that's there is the word call, shall call a convention. What is it? One of the factors, a call of a convention contains three things. It contains a subject matter, it contains a date, and it contains a time, uh, or excuse me, a place, rather. So a call will have those three elements. The topic, the, the, the lessons of history, if we've had 450 applications, and if it didn't matter what, what the topic was, we would have had a convention on all kinds of things. For example, for right now today, if you add the plenary applications, mostly coming from the 1700s and 1800s, but there, have been, there are 13 active calls for a plenary convention today, that, that is a convention that can consider anything. Um, um, and you add them to the number of, of right to life amendment applications that have been exerted. You could have a convention on right to life right now, today, but you can't add them. The same thing is true. You could add them together and get the 16th Amendment reversed. You could add them together and get one, one um, man, one vote reversed at the state level. There, there are all kinds of things if you add them together, but that's not the rule of history and that's not the rule of law. The rule, this is... Legislative history is part of what the word call means, and we have definitively settled as a matter of legislative history. We have multiple times had the necessary number for a call if subject matter didn't matter. Now, the litigation that I did in the ERA case uh, held, and 
recent court decisions have affirmed that case. That is, you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream. If you start out saying you're going to have seven years for ratification, you got seven years for ratification. You can't change the rules in the middle of the stream. And the same thing is true here. If you start a convention for the purposes of the three topics that we have here, you can't change the rule and add a fourth or a fifth or a ninth. You, you stick to the topics at hand. And that's the way it's always been, and that's the way it will be. Follow-up. Thank you, Chair. So is it your testimony that there is no possibility that if such a convention were called, um, the proceedings could evolve from a mere suggestion to amend the Constitution into a proceeding where the Constitution may be totally eradicated and replaced by an entirely new Constitution? That cannot happen, um, Mr. Chairman, I'm sorry, uh, Representative Brown through the chair. Um, no, it can't happen as a matter of pragmatism and as a matter of law. The matter of pragmatism is whatever comes out of this convention, whatever comes out, has to be ratified by 38 states. Because we're not operating outside of the constitutional convention process in Article 5. We're operating within it. If the states, using the power, the, the implied power of the Declaration of Independence, basically held a revolution and said, we want to have a new thing altogether, and enough states showed up, you could try to do some kind of radical exercise like that. That can't happen inside the Article 5 process. You have to have 38 states ratifying. And anybody that monkeys with the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, lots of amendments, any, you know, lots of provisions, the separation of powers, the two term limits on the president, there's lots of things that would be, be so clearly voted down that we don't have to give them serious consideration. It's just, we have to breathe and take a little bit of common sense to it. Moreover, there would, if somebody tried that, I personally guarantee, I at least will file the case and challenge them. I filed the first case against the, the abuse of the ERA and I won. And I'll do it again if, I, if that happens. Follow, proceed. Thank you for your response, I appreciate it. I have a, some questions about how, how this would operate. Um, a, a convention, for example, with regard to the selection of delegates to a convention, I suppose one option would be to let the state legislatures choose delegates from their state to the convention. Another option might be for Congress to require elections for delegates, uh, which could occur in either nationwide, statewide, or perhaps House district races. So what is your understanding or your belief as to how delegates to such a convention would be selected? They will be selected by the legislature, that is a certainty. Because what it is, is a convention of states. That's what the founders called it. Uh, the original, the first application was from Virginia in 1788. Even before the Constitution had been ratified, but the government wasn't operational. And they called for a convention, basically to give us the Bill of Rights. And in that document, they call it a convention of states. That is a term of art that has a fixed and noble meaning. And it's the legislatures that do the calling through, you know, they, they do the application. The states control the process, just like the convention they came out of. I gave you the examples of New York controlling its delegates, Delaware controlling its delegates. It is the delegates of this state legislature. There is no doubt about it. Can people argue anything? Sure, they can argue anything. The likelihood of that happening is the likelihood of President Biden appointing me to the next vacancy of the Supreme Court. I mean, yeah, I guess it could happen, but you can, you can bet anything you want to bet, and that ain't going to happen. Final question. 
proceed. Me. Thank you. Because I thought you were going to be the next appointment to the uh, U.S. Supreme no. Court. No. No. My final question, sir, is, uh, um, and I, I, I think this is somewhat related, would each state be represented equally at the convention, or would there be some kind of, uh, would each state be proportionally represented based on population? States meet one state, one vote. You can send as many delegates as you want. Our recommendation is you send five or seven, an odd, odd number so that they, they would effectively, just at the, as at the original convention, caucus together, and whoever had the majority within your delegation would cast Ohio's vote. And so, um, but it's one state, one vote, caucusing. The, um, there are dozens and dozens of state compacts, interstate compacts. Uh, and every interstate compact that I've looked at, and I've, I've, I've looked at everyone I know to look at, um, and every single one of them has the equality of the states as the means of voting. Some of them do it by giving the same number of delegates to each state, and the delegates can vote independently. Other states, they use the one state, one vote system in some kind of variation, but it's always, but it's equality of the states is the absolute rule for every interstate compact in the country that I'm aware of. And so we'd be following that. And you know, there's the Interstate um, Commission for Uniform Laws that gave us the Uniform Commercial Code and many other things. It's one state, one vote. That's effectively parallel, exactly parallel to what would be happening here. Thank you. Representative Swearingen with a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much for your testimony. My question was just, and Representative Brown kind of touched on this, the selection of the, what I understand to be one delegate from each state to the convention would be selected by the state legislature. I'm assuming that would be the House and the Senate. And could you maybe elaborate on what the process might look like? Would there be resumes submitted, vote, you know, how, how would that occur? Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Representative Swergan. Um, a state could, if you wanted to have one delegate, I would not suggest it. Your state gets one vote as a unit. Uh, and so you could, you know, if you want to send 50, you, I wouldn't recommend it. It wouldn't be fiscally responsible and create a lot of problems. But, but I would recommend five, seven, some number like that. And the, um, the House and the Senate would have to collaborate on the process. Um, we have a set of model rules on how to do that. And the best framework for doing this is, we believe, rules, not legislation. The reason for that is that there have been multiple cases going to the Supreme Court on this point, And that is Article V power is held by the state legislature, not by the state government. The government, governor has no role in the process uh, of, of Article V. And so ordinary legislation the governor signs it. This resolution that you're debating today, or considering today, does not go to the governor. It, it's this, and so legislative rules can control the process in a, in a fashion that can't really be challenged. And so I, I would suggest that, that you're, uh, as we get close to the convention, as we get close to 34, we're 19 right now and moving, um, that as soon as possible, but certainly by, by that time. Adopt joint rules that clarify the process. We have models for you to consider. It, it's really pretty easy. I mean, a lot of states are doing things like the uh, leadership of each house recommends three people, and in in, in, then there's a, a 
uh, process for getting the seventh. You know, there's, you know, it, it's, it's the kind of thing you do for creating commissions and joint study things on a pretty regular basis. It's not unusual. Continue. Just a, just a quick follow-up. In your opinion, would you advise that the legislature put rules on those? Let's just say they went with five or seven delegates to the convention. Should the legislature put rules on those individuals on how, you know, almost like bylaws of how they're to conduct themselves or make decisions while they're at the convention? Or do you advise just leaving that open-ended? Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Representative Swearingen, um, the model rules we have have, I would say, a moderate degree of control. Um, uh, for example, one of the things that we've suggested is that you that the, the the group name one person as the spokesman for the state of Ohio, that you don't have all of them going off and spouting this and that and the other thing. You could adopt that. You don't have to adopt that. But that's the kind of thing you could adopt. And so you you can. But I would not want to tie their hands so that they you know every single little thing that they're doing, uh, they have to come back here for, for direction or guidance. But I would put some big pieces in place and there, you know, uh, um, we have some suggestions, um, but there could be others. The hearing process of adopting such rules would help you know, clarify some ideas that uh, I think would probably be for the better overall. That's very helpful, thankful. Thank you. Uh, Representative Kendall with a question. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, I want to return uh, to the line of questioning that Representative Brown had, which is this provisions found at line 67 through 68 in the resolution dealing with uh, uh, one state, one vote. Uh, you claim that it's uh, uh, equality of the states is, is something commonly used in some compacts. My, I, I find this provision very troubling uh, because equality does not necessarily mean that it's fair for the citizens. Um, so Montana, excuse me, Wyoming, for example, which has a population of 580,000 people, would have the same vote as a state of Ohio, which has nearly 12 million people. So you're watering down the influence of the, the, the people of Ohio, they, they have less of a say-so uh, by population. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I find that, that concept troubling uh, and uh, unfair for the citizens of Ohio. Mr. Chairman, Representative Skindell, um, the exact same criticism can be leveled at the U.S. Senate because it is based on the equality of the states. And we we represent the house represents population population is an important component of our government and one house is dedicated to that both houses in this chamber are dedicated to or are divided on a very strict population equality basis um, but it's not the only consideration and it, it's one state one vote on the ratification process that can't be doubted uh, uh, wyoming has the exact same voting power as california on whether a constitutional amendment is ratified. It's just the structure of a federal constitutional republic. If we are a pure democracy, and that was, our, and that was the way the constitution was written and the way the government was framed, then you're, then you're uh, and that was the only guiding star principle that we were to follow, then your, your critique would be well taken. But 
it's not the only principle, and we're not starting from scratch. We're not writing the process freshly. We're not deciding what should they have done. We're following the rules that they did create, and the rules they did create gave a role to the states. This takes 34 states to call the convention. That inequality that you talk about is bound up there. It takes 38 states to ratify. The quality that you criticize is bound up there. And it's say, the same thing at the convention. It's states, states, states at every level of the process. It's the quality of the states that's inherent in the process at all three stages. And whatever equality in that is to the nature of a constitutional republic, just like the U.S. Senate. Uh, Mr. Chair, uh, follow up. So you say it's in the, in the structure uh, and it's in the rules. The problem is, is this application is setting forth the rule. We are creating... Uh, an unfair situation by requiring equality of the states that have been held to. And we don't have full uh, equality of the states in the Congress because, again, as you mentioned, the House of Representatives is based upon population. So there's a consideration of both. This uh, particular application does not consider both situations, and it leads to an unfair situations for the people of Ohio. Um, Mr. Chairman, Representative Skindell, um, if, again, we were writing the process fresh, we could debate whether this was a good idea or a bad idea. We're not there. We, we can't debate whether um, the Electoral College should exist or not. We can, you know, we can try to change that. You can change the process for it, but that's the process we got. States matter in electing the president. Um, there is equality built into it because every state legislature that controls every step of the process is based on equality of population within the state. So the voters of Canton don't have more influence than the, the voters of Toledo or take any other two places you want. There is equality within the state that is guaranteed as the structure of the process. But if you want us to jettison the equality of the states. We've got a lot of things to jettison. We've got to get rid of the Electoral College. We've got to get rid of um, the U.S. Senate. We've got to get rid of the, process, the entire process of amending the Constitution of the United States, not just one, one element of it. And so if you think the process is unfair, then the thing for you to do is to call for a convention of the states to change Article 5 to require uh, proportional representation at every stage of the process. There's a way to write that to do that. And if you, if you can get 38 states to agree with you, more power to you. But until then, it's the structure that the founders gave us, and the wisdom of it is for history to decide. Mr. Chair, follow-up. Um, so the structure of the convention is being dictated by us, not uh, some 200-plus years ago by the founders of this country. We in this resolution are saying one state, one vote. We can change that. We can debate that now so that when amendments are proposed and there's discussion at the floor of the convention, there's fairness in the system, not equality of the, the, the states, which is unfair to the people of Ohio. My gr other concern about this uh, equality of the state's proposal is that the majority of the states have a lower population than Ohio, uh, and they tend to be less diverse. The more populous states tend to be a little bit more diverse. So when you have this equality of the states based upon uh, just the states, uh, you're weighting it towards a white population and, and discounting 
the, the various minorities, the, the ethnic uh, groups, and uh, the racial groups uh, within this country. And again, it's unfair. It's unfair to the citizens of Ohio. Mr. Chairman, Representative Scandell, um, what is being done in this resolution is not creating law. Ohio cannot dictate the rule for the convention. Ohio can dictate to its delegates how they're going to vote. That's it. And so if 26 states come to the convention instructing their, their, uh, their delegates to affirm the natural process, that is, it's one state, one vote, vote's over. Because that first vote is going to be taken one state, one vote, whether anybody likes it or not. That's how the first vote will be taken. And I'm certain that there will be an attempt to change that California will make the motion, New York will second it. Our, uh, you know, interestingly, Texas and Florida, I can pretty well guarantee you, will vote against it, uh, even though they're two of the very most populous states. Um, and so the, uh, the suggestion that you're creating anything is like this legislature citing a rule of common law as you're making a piece of legislation. You cite pre-existing rules on a regular basis, and this is no different. You're, you're reciting the reality that that's how it is, and you're going to make sure that your, your delegates are not going to engage in some kind of rebellion that's going to just waste time and end up being defeated anyway. Representative Thomas with a question. Mr. Ferris, thanks for being here today. Thanks for your testimony. Uh, my question is about uh, Texas, and most U.S. citizens would like a um, you look at the tech situation in Texas and would like a solution to the standoff between the state and the federal government. How could a convention of states propose an amendment to fix this, to fix this issue? Uh, Mr. Chairman, Representative Thomas, um, well, there, there are two different paths. One is you could do a standalone application that would just address the, the border situation. And you could have a, you could, you could call a convention to say, We'd like a convention to solely address a remedy for the border crisis. And then you would have a convention on that, on that topic. Under our application, since you're the, it, it makes germane things that reduce the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, an amendment that would give states joint jurisdiction to pass legislation to control the border within their state so that you wouldn't have automatic federal supremacy. You could give Texas the right to control Texas's border jointly with the federal government. You could give, uh, and if the feds didn't want to enforce their law, okay, that's fine. Texas can enforce its law. Uh, and so that would be germane under our application. So, so at least to that extent, it would be appropriate. You could also, under our application, if you wanted to say the United States does not have the authority to give asylum to people who came here illegally an amendment could be crafted for that purpose. That would be germane. Do I think that that is likely to get out of, out of the commission and get ratified by 38 states? Not very likely, but it's just an example um, of, of what could happen. Although I think the first example I gave you could get out and could get ratified where you give joint jurisdiction to the border states so that they can control their borders. Urbson Swearing General with a question. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Vice Chairman Thomas just said on my question, because not only is our spending just wildly out of control at the federal level, we have a wide open border, too. So thank you for speaking on that. My question was going to be, what can we do about the border at the Convention of the States? And I think you just answered that very nicely. Thank you. Uh, thank you for testimony. I have one quick question. Um, 
Well, and first, I've heard hours and hours of testimony on this issue in the past, and probably have heard you testify in front of me at various times. But uh, functional anarchist is a new term. I appreciate that. I've been thinking about that all the way through your testimony, thinking about the people I know and friends of mine who are now functional anarchists. So I'll have fun telling them that. Um, <laughs> and not sure whether it's a compliment or uh, uh, picking on it. But um, uh, my question is, so 38 states need to approve this exactly in the exact form on all three of these issues, uh, correct. And right now, 19 have, but yes. it has to be exact, the resolution has to be exactly the same in all 38 states, is that correct? Um, almost, um, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the application phase is 34 states have to agree on the topics. And uh, probably you could get away with minor variations on the topic. We're not taking any chances. Every state that has done this has done it verbatim on the operative language, not on the whereas and all the surrounding. But the, the operative resolution has been precisely this. Uh, frankly, I got into this by going to a me meeting in Denver 12 years ago, we'll call it, um, where we're looking at the BBA, balanced budget amendment applications. And I looked at all the various forms of it and I go, you guys got a real, will have a, have a real aggregation problem because they've been written in so many different ways. And, you know, many of them, for example, say, we want to hold a convention to call for this particular amendment. Well, that didn't aggregate with anything other than calls for that particular amendment. The best way that we would do it is just say, let's have a convention on balanced budget amendment. But only like six states have ever done that. Um, and so, um, so I, I, I spoke up at the meeting and says, why don't we just start over and do it right? And that's where the Convention of States process was born, was on my suggestion, let's start over and do it right. And as long as we're fixing it, let's fix it. Because if you just try say, balance the budget, it doesn't say you're gonna control the spending necessarily, because the mechanisms to do that may or may not be present in a balanced budget amendment. But, but controlling the spending is the game. And, to get, and, and, and the real game there is to get them to go back to spending for the enumerated powers. If, if you're spending on things that are outside the enumerated powers of the federal government, we're always going to be in this crazy, broke situation where we're trying to fund everything for everybody. It's just, it's unsustainable, and our country shouldn't have to put up with it anymore. So one quick follow-up. Yeah. So if, um, yeah. you know, we try and pass something through the legislature, right. I, I expect there's several different beliefs amongst probably even this committee, but certainly the legislature as a whole on those three topics. Uh, some of us may strongly support two of them. Some may support all three. Some may support one. If if we as a, an Ohio legislature were to craft a one that said, you know, we agree with two out of these three, um, and other states agreed with two out of the three, uh, can we just do uh, would that would that count towards doing two out of the three, or does it, uh, or would you have to start over with everybody just doing two items? Mr. Chairman, the best answer I give you is we throw dust in the air where we don't need to. Um, and so it, it creates uncertainty. Um, we have to litigate that, frankly. And I don't want to have to litigate. I mean, people can file a lawsuit that's just nuts. I, I want to eliminate reasonable litigation. And, and so, um, so I would make an observation and a suggestion. The observation is, we're agreeing on an agenda, not on an outcome. And so, I mean, I'll tell you from testifying in, I don't know how many state legislatures now, lots. 
the one of the most popular ideas in, in our application among people is term limits. The least popular idea among legislators is term limits. And, and so, you know, there, there you go. Now, who's going to ratify this at the end of the day? So legislatures are gonna ratify it. And so if a term limits proposal gets 26 states to vote for it by delegates appointed by the legislatures, it's gonna go out and then the legislatures, are gonna get 38 states to vote yes? My guess is that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a big uphill battle. And, and so whether that one happens or not, I don't know. Now, my suggestion would be what you could do, and what I would ask you to do if you're considering something like this, is to pass it verbatim and then instruct the Ohio delegates to not vote in favor of any term limits proposal. Other states have done that exact thing. And so you're keeping the resolution so that there's no aggregation problem, but you're bending the, the course of the discussion in a particular direction that if that's your, if that's your concern, um, you, you can bend the course in that way. Rep. Sam Humphreys with a question. All right, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, thank you for hanging in there. Lots of questions today. I'm gonna to be brief. My question is, and I think you touched on it, but I'm gonna ask it again. We're talking about topics discussed um, at the convention. And my question is, um, I know that there might be like a wide variation, but what are some of the topics that would be discussed at um, a convention by the delegates? Because we know the, the language is sort of vague. So just real quick, just wanted to sure. know. I'll give you four examples of things that I think can have political, realistic ideas behind them, and they're not crazy. One would be a single subject rule on Congress to say that they, they, they get rid of these multi-thousand pages of ominous bills that throw everything in the, in the kitchen sink in them. Um, no, one single subject, 41 states have a single subject rule. Congress should have a single subject rule. I think that has legs and could get ratified by 38 states. The treaty idea that I said earlier that all treaties have to be ratified by the Senate, I think that has uh, value and could get ratified by 38 states. Uh, I think that limiting the power of the federal government vis-a-vis the Department of Education, it's gonna be a closer call, but I think that you probably could uh, box the federal government out of the education business, not counting military education, not counting the District of Columbia, but vis-a-vis but -vis the states, you could box the federal government out of education, and that has a better chance of uh, being ratified other than you know some of the other, other topics. You know, I would like to fix the Commerce Clause and the General Welfare Clause to go back to the original meanings of both, which is if the states can regulate it, the federal government can. If the states can spend money on it, the federal government can. That's the original meaning of both of those clauses. And 99% of the way the federal government has gone awry is violation of those two clauses. And, and so, um, that's my ideal, but getting those ratified, that's, that's a tougher chore. And so, but, but those are some examples of things I think are realistic. Seen, oh, oh, Representative Brown with a question. Thank you, Chair. The, uh, in Ohio, our Constitution does provide for a single subject rule, uh, which we ignore all the time. We just did ignore it not too long ago, which I pointed out on the floor of the House. I've pointed out many, many times. So I don't think the notion that we can have a single subject rule is really going to provide any real guardrail at all. 
because we have it here and we ignore it with impunity. Mr. Chairman, I think that I was respond. a statement, not a question, but yep. uh, you're welcome to respond. With impunity? Um, Mr. Uh, Chairman, Ms. Representative Brown, let me write it and I'll fix that problem. Uh, because I mean, the easiest way is I would write into it taxpayer standing to challenge any litigation because the biggest problem with violations of those is who has standing to challenge the violation of the rule. If you put right in a rule that says any taxpayer of Ohio has standing to challenge the violation of the single subject rule, all of a sudden you've got a real rule. Uh, and, and you could do that at the federal level as well. And there might be other things that we could do. You know, we need to study that. Uh, why this has been abused in some states. And you're not the only state that said that. But I think you could write it correctly because it is a good rule. And your, your frustration tells me you agree with the idea that it is a good rule. It should be used. And, and so, so you and I work together. We'll get it written correctly. Thank you for your testimony. I appreciate you being Mr. Chairman, with thank us you so today. Much. Um, uh, just for uh, clarity, uh, and so everybody knows uh, that we have 18 more presenters that I know of. Uh, that one took 45 minutes. I'm fine with that uh, all the way through the rest of the day, but we finish about midnight, 1 a.m. I'm in if that's what you want to do, but uh, collectively, if we can condense our comments, uh, uh, shorten our questions and our answers, uh, we'll be in good shape. And I think we will be. They'll go faster after this one. Um, the good individual took most of the questions. I expect. So the next uh, presenter we have is William Scott. Is Mr. Scott available? I certainly Thank am. you for being with us. Thank you. And good afternoon. I had written down good morning, but as you said, it's, uh, it's now afternoon. So good afternoon. Uh, Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. Uh, as I said, my name is Bill Scott. I'm from Dayton, Ohio, and House District 38. I serve as the State Director for Convention of States here in Ohio. Um, we're a nation, nationwide organization, uh, nonprofit with over 5 million supporters, and more than 2.5 million Americans have signed our petition for the Convention of States. Right here in Ohio, we have 113,000 of those who have signed the petition. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about the purpose of the Article 5 Convention and why it's in the Constitution. Uh, the founders established three branches of the federal government with checks and balances to limit powers of each branch. They also check powers by wisely balancing it between federal and state governments. That balance of power is called federalism. And unfortunately, that balancing check is now nearly gone in our country. And why is that? Because for many decades, the states have failed to push back against the federal overreach by asserting their own constitutional powers over centralized federal power grabs. As the power in DC has grown, America's trust in federal government has declined. According to a 2022 research article by Pew, in the 1960s, more than 70% of Americans trusted their federal government to do the right thing, just about always, maybe not always, but they trusted it most of the time. Today, that's only 20% of Americans think the federal government can be trusted. This finding holds for both Democrats, Republicans, as Americans have become more and more dissatisfied with an extremely bloated and overreaching federal government. As Dr. Ferris uh, mentioned uh, pretty well here, Article 5 of the Constitution was designed to ensure that that balance of power between federal and state governments remains in place 
And with Article 5, the states can rebalance those powers using their ability to propose amendments. With the state's proposed amendments to the Constitution, it's important to recognize the distinction between the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and what's being proposed here today in HDR 3, which is simply a meeting of countrywide state legislators to propose limited amendments. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 was obviously not called under Article 5 of the Constitution because it didn't exist yet, it wasn't written. Opponents of convention states often try to confuse and scare people by conflating two different types of meetings. An amendment proposing conventions is not a constitutional convention or a con-con, as many opponents call it in a, in a rather pejorative way, I might say. Uh, the Constitutional Convention of 1787 was not called under the Articles because the Articles made no provision for any such convention. Instead, it was called under the reserved sovereign authority of the states. The states were completely sovereign at the time our Constitution was adopted, and the Articles Confederation recognized that they had the power to write a new Constitution. They had that power to draft a new system of government, and that's what they did in the Constitutional Convention of 1787. That's not what HDR 3 does. What this resolution does is use Article 5 of the Constitution to allow the states to exercise the same power that Congress has every day to propose amendments. No different. They can propose amendments any day of the week, and they do. In just 20 words, that's what Clause 2 is all about. It says, and I won't read it again because uh, Representative Brown has already read it. So as of now, 19 states have passed virtually identical and operative language in Ohio in HDR 3, if it's passed along with a companion resolution in the Senate, we could become the 20th, 21st, 22nd state. Our United States Constitution is the world's longest surviving written charter of government. The unrestrained growth of reckless spending by our federal government places our country in an extremely dangerous position. If we don't put a stop to the financial recklessness of DC, inescapable monetary forces will do it for us throwing the economy and our way of life into chaos. The worldwide consequences would be, I dare say, devastating if America collapses due to its own self-inflicted wounds. As legislators in Ohio, you have the authority and the responsibility to check the federal government, and each of you took an oath of office to defend and support the Constitution. So your support today in HJR 3 can help fulfill that promise. Thanks for the opportunity to testify, and I do appreciate it. And I'll attempt to answer any questions, and Dr. Ferris can assist me if necessary. Thank you for your testimony, Representative Graham, and welcome to the committee. Representative Graham, glad to have you with us with the first question. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Glad to be here. Um, I had to step out for a minute for the last testimony, but um, I apologize if this was asked before. Um, how are the delegates to the convention selected? Because I don't think that's really clear on um, what I've heard. Um, you know, I, I know how the representatives for the state and the federal government are selected. They are elected by the voters. But how are the um, delegates selected for the convention? Right. Well, the, um, each state is responsible at the state legislature level to select those delegates. And it's up to the state legislature group, the Senate and the House, uh, to decide how they're going to do that. 
Many states and Ohio eventually will be one of those as well. We have a draft we can share with the committee or our sponsors or anybody else. A draft of uh, used to be called faithful delegate selection, meaning we want faithful delegates. I think we call it a model resolution uh, for selection of delegates, something along those lines. Uh, but that is a, a document that uh, uh, gives some guidance and you can modify it in any way, shape or form. Some, some will say, let's get a joint committee together of House representatives and Senate representatives. Leadership appoints somebody, uh, rank and file appoints some. They'll come up with ways to put a committee together. Um, or perhaps they'll vote on it as a caucus. Both caucuses come together. But it's going to be up to the each individual state legislature how they select uh, those delegates. Follow? Um, so how... How do states decide how many delegates to send to yeah. the convention? And I'll yeah. let you answer that one. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Uh, that, again, is going to be directly up to the state legislatures. Um, Dr. Ferris had mentioned, I guess, when you were out of the room, that uh, he would recommend anywhere from five to seven, just an odd number. So as a group, you're going to get one vote as a state. But within your little group for the state delegation, it's good to have an odd number if you take a vote and three or four and four against and so forth. I uh, wouldn't recommend sending just one person, but you could send three, you could send five, you could send seven. You could send 50, but you still get one vote. So that's going to be up to, to the state. But we think most states will send about five people. Continue. So uh, that kind of leads to my next question. Um, I could really see uh, an imbalance of how folks are picked uh, with the delegation, especially um, in uh, states with, you know, super majorities and things like that. So how can we ensure a fair um, process to pick people to go to the convention of states? I think a lot of my colleagues had mentioned, like, we have issues with um, Wyoming, for example, as uh, Representative Skindell said, only has 500,000 uh, residents, but we have almost 12 million. Um, so we're we're selecting five to seven people. Uh, Wyoming's baby is selecting seven to nine people. I, you know, they do get one vote, but like they, you know, I feel like they might get more of a voice there because they have more people. So how do you how do you ensure a fair process around picking delegates? Yeah, well, that uh, it's a it's a balancing political act, I would have to say, and that you negotiate just like you negotiate every day on bills in the House and Senate. And I would say there's a, you know, you mentioned a supermajority. Uh, Ohio is not the only one with a supermajority. There are supermajorities in other states that have uh, supermajorities going the other way. But in, in the end, we want something that is achievable to come out of this convention. By achievable, I mean 38 states have to uh, ratify it. So if you put all Democrats on your committee or you put all Republicans on your delegation, um, in all the states, you're not going to get something that's reasonable or approvable or ratifiable in all the other states. So I think there's a built-in self-guard there that it's in the interest of whoever this committee is. It may not be a committee, but it probably would be a committee, a joint committee, to have bipartisan representation, different points of view, and uh, that's kind of how we expect it might happen. Dr. Ferris, did you have anything to add to that? Representative okay. Skindell with a question. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. Um, I'm curious, as state director uh, to the Convention of uh, States, I was wondering if uh, there have been 
meetings, telephone discussions. Uh, I don't know if you meet annually uh, as state directors, uh, um, but if, if you've had the opportunity to discuss uh, the three topics uh, in these applications, and I'm more concerned about the second one, which says that uh, uh, amendments limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, because to me that seems to be broad and ambiguous. And I was wondering if there's been discussion around that component as, as to what that includes. Well, it'll be up to, to the delegates to decide. It is a broad brush, you're right. But it's basically, if I could summarize it this way, that is meant to say, who decides for you and I to, to be self-governing citizens? Is it going to be an unelected uh, agency in D.C., or is it going to be, uh, you know, the representatives that you elect to go to Congress? Um, I think that, uh, you know, the power and jurisdiction of the federal government means that there's too much power delegated to unelected officials. And Dr. Ferris had mentioned earlier about the, the two main uh, problems are the Commerce Clause and the General Welfare Clause. So just by tightening those two up, you have an ability to, um, you know, to do Let's say, let's call it what it is, downsize the federal government. The federal government is bloated, out of control, spending wildly. And uh, we suspect that some of these uh, amendments that come out of there to uh, basically have uh, a better shot at having accountability to elected officials versus unelected uh, uh, agencies will come out of that limitation on government. So that's what we mean by limiting the power, scope, and jurisdiction. Follow. Sure. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, again, with regard to you know just your participation in this, uh, last uh, fall, uh, state of Ohio voted on a constitutional amendment dealing with uh, women's reproductive rights, and I'm, I'm again focused on the second agenda item. You know, limiting the uh, the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. Could the topic? of abortion be brought up in the convention where the uh, delegates are considering either an amendment that would um, prohibit the federal government from allowing uh, abortions or uh, saying that the federal government cannot uh, uh, prohibit uh, abortions. Would that um, uh, abortion uh, topic be brought up in the convention, do you think, under, under this component? Well, I'll take a, a quick shot at it, and I want to defer to the man who was behind the scenes in the Dobbs decision, has a lot of knowledge about what actually happened. But I would say that no, because it's not germane to those three topic areas. Um, it's not having to do with the federal budgets and having to do with term limits, and it's not about an unelected bureaucracy running things in D.C. So I would say no, it, it would not, not be uh, germane. So continue, final. With regard to the operation of the uh, the organization uh, convention of, of of the states, um, do the are there annual meetings or regular meetings of the uh, state directors, and are those open to the public? Um, there are periodic. I wouldn't call them annual. I would say maybe biannual every other year. We do get together as a uh, as a group nationwide. Uh, the last one was uh, in October, um, a year ago, uh, October 22, 
in Orlando, and we had all 50 states represented there. We had primarily people like myself, state directors and state leaders. Um, our, our Ohio delegation probably had eight or 10 people. Um, it was not open to the public per se, because it was basically a, a meeting for training, for uh, awards, for uh, passing on information uh, about uh, our strategies and so forth. But there were members of uh, you know, uh, uh, certain press, I think, there were, were there, not, not a lot, but somebody reported on it for, for, the, uh, for the record. Okay. Representative Hoops with a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you. This is this has been very educational. My 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 question goes back to the picking of the delegates. It's been mentioned that the legislature would be the the body that would pick the delegates. What happens though, or could this happen that there's groups out there that don't agree with that? Can these things end up in the courts? And I guess the second thing is, what courts would it would it be the state court or would it be the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, that, that's a good question. I'm going to ask my colleague, Dr. Ferris, here to please uh, tackle that one. With your permission, Mr. Chairman, uh, Representative Hoops, um, the the last part of the question is uh, the easiest to answer, and that is, it would it's a, it's a federal constitutional question, and so it would end up in the federal courts, could end up in the Supreme Court of the United States, of course, and probably would in, on such a question. Um, the um, can it be successfully challenged? You know, there's you can file lawsuits about anything. I don't think there's a reasonable basis for challenging it because I think the first line of defense, any state attorney general defending it, is this is in the political question doctrine. The courts routinely do not accept cases that they say are a political are a political question, and so things like the the way you select your delegates fall within the discretion of the, the elected legislature. And the courts don't have any judicially manageable standard to, um, to manage that by so that they, they, there's no basis. They would just be substituting their wisdom for that of the legislatures, and they're gonna kick this out in a heartbeat on political question. There, there are basically two lines of federal cases on, there's some state cases as well, but mostly federal cases on Article Five. There's a few that, that they get to, like, can you use the state constitution's um, initiative and referendum process in Article 5? The answer is no. And they've gotten to the merits of that multiple times, including cases from Ohio. But there are other questions, such as the one that you posed, that they kick out on the political question doctrine. So I think that I don't think that that litigation would get past first base and they kick it out on a political question. Representative Brown with a question. Thank you, Chair. In your written testimony, you state this HGR 3 resolution is not about policy position. It is not about Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. Um, isn't it true, though, that the founders of the Convention of States project were Republicans, conservative Republicans, and that the funders, the primary funders of the Convention of States project are conservative Republicans and in some instances far right folks? Um, I would uh, say that the far right is, is a, a value judgment that I wouldn't necessarily say is, is uh, uh, true, but um, it's, it's true that they are of, of a conservative nature. Dr. Ferris is one of the co-founders you just heard from, and uh, Mark Meckler is also a, a conservative uh, Republican, but uh, I can tell you that um, this application, this process has broad bipartisan support. 
There have been many polls done across the country. In fact, uh, just one about two weeks ago in the state of Pennsylvania, right next door, where the vast majority of, they did 800 uh, voters uh, of both parties, and 70% uh, roughly of uh, Republicans and almost as many Democrats supported the need for a convention of states. 65% uh, of independents. So that it's pretty, um, it doesn't matter who runs the organization if, if its goals are understood by the people who support it. Would we love to have more uh, people that are, are less uh, on the conservative side? Of course, and we do have some, but that uh, is what it is as in terms of who our founders are. Follow up, proceed. Well, you mentioned Mark Meckler, one of the co-founders of the Convention of States. He's also the co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots, president of the Citizens for Self-Governance. Uh, there was an article June 23 in the New York Magazine entitled The Dark Money Behind Mark Meckler's Convention of States, which uh, traced the group's path and funding and uh, determined that the Convention of States drew in over $58 million in dark money between 16 and 21 from funds tied to the networks of the Koch brothers, as well as Leonard Leo, who are well-known right-wing benefactors of conservative and right-wing uh, uh, policies and uh, interests. Uh, also, according to SourceWatch, IRS filings reveal that the Convention of States action is donated to the following state Republican parties since 2020, Hawaii, Idaho, Kansas, Michigan, Texas, New Mexico, and Wisconsin, states dominated by Republicans. No money, however, has been donated by the Convention of States to any Democratic state parties. So uh, there's no question to me that the, the Convention of States seems to have, both in its founding, its membership, its funding, and its primary support, uh, folks who are have pretty obvious far-right and conservative political leanings um, and is heavily slandered toward one, one school of thought and one way of looking at issues. Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, as I've said before, it's the, there's no denying that uh, the organization was founded by conservative organizations. I can't really speak to that article. I haven't seen it. Um, and dark money is one of those uh, funny terms that people like to throw out there. And I can, I can assure you that there's far many, if there is such thing as dark money coming in the organization, I'm not aware of it. There may be, I don't know. But the, uh, the opponents have far more dark money, I would suspect. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, it's not un unthinkable that they would have dark money as well. Dr. Ferris, do you have any financial uh, comments on that? Yeah, let's, uh, okay. are there other questions for this witness? Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you. your testimony. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Seth Wegeman. I'm going to cut my remarks very short, but I welcome. I believe you. the committee will be okay with that. I welcome you to look at to look at my written testimony and ask me any questions concerning anything that you find in there that's interesting to you. Uh, my name is Seth Wegeman. Thank you, Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, and Ranking Member Humphrey. Um, I'm from Beaver Creek, Ohio, House District 70, and I will today discuss one of the pillars of the Convention of States movement, which is imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government. And I will do this by analogy. When a person seeks to get their finances under control, there's three things that they need to do. And I've been in this situation um, before. 
the first thing is to stop taking on new debt unless it's an actual emergency. Um, the second thing that you do is you pay off your debts to reduce the amount of interest that you're that you're that is flowing out of your budget. And the last step is then to get into a better situation where you are prepared for those emergencies and you don't need to go into debt ever again. Um, let's consider the federal government situation. The, the, there is a debt ceiling, but it is more fictional than real. It is a political football. Um, the second thing to pay off debts, there is no plan that I've ever seen where this, this federal government is ever planning to pay off its debts, much less get it under control. Um, and saving for future emergencies, I wanna bring that up. During World War II, the ratio of debt to GDP was lower than it is now. If we wanted to fight another world war, we would be in a very tough financial situation at, at this moment. Um, I highly encourage you to allow this to go to the House floor for a vote. Um, there have been surveys over nearly 40 years that on average, the people of the United States support a balanced budget amendment by high margins in the 70s. This can pass. This is realistic. Um, and as Dr. Ferris mentioned, a single subject rule in combination with other amendments from the list of topics that are germane to the to the convention could present a realistic way forward for us to get the finances of the federal government under control. Um, and one last thing to consider, um, the psalmist of the Bible stated, quote, the wicked borroweth and payeth not again, close quote. That is, in my opinion, the way that the federal government is operating. We are printing currency and hoping that that is going to fool our debtors into believing that we plan to pay off our debts, but we have no plan. And it is up to us, the people in the states of this country, to bring this government under control. Thank you very much. Thank you for your testimony. Um, certainly good advice that any financial planner would give to uh, anybody. Are there questions for the witness? Thank you very much. Next up, we have uh, Brenda Mitchell. Ms. Mitchell, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good morning, or good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> Turn the mic down. Okay. Uh, Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, and Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. My name is Brenda Mitchell, and I'm from Bell Fountain, Ohio, and I live in House District 85. Our system of electing members of Congress was intended by the founders to operate like a free market system in the sense that legislators who served the people well could be reelected while those who performed poorly would be voted out. The founders, ne the founders never intended legislators to make a career of Congress and to serve for 30 or 40 years, such as Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Grassley. As proof throughout the 1800s, the norm was for members of Congress to serve just one or two terms. From 1850 to 1898, turnover in Congress averaged 50.2%, meaning half of Congress was replaced every election cycle. 
Today, nine out of every 10 members of Congress who run for re-election win. This might be reasonable if Congress were popular with the American people, but it's not. Congress's approval rating is about 15%. Clearly, our system is broken. And why is our system broken? Why can't the American people get the highly unpopular members of Congress replaced with new people bringing new ideas and, and to address our country's problems? The answer in large part is that incumbents have unfair advantages that bias elections in their favor. These advantages include incumbents have a four to one fundraising advantage over challengers. In many cases, the advantages, the advantage is much higher. Incumbents can leverage political patronage, meaning politicians doing favors for constituents in exchange for votes. Party support usually favors incumbents and incumbents usually have better established campaign infrastructure and staff compared to the challengers. Media attention usually favors incumbents and access to government services, such as the ability to hold official events or town hall meetings favors incumbents. Saying it simply, the deck is stacked in favor of incumbents. This is, for the most part, how Congress can have just a 15% approval rating and yet have a 90% re-election rate. The problems that have plagued our country for decades never seem to get fixed because the politicians who have either created them or have perpetuated them continue to stay in office. Problems like our national debt, immigration policy, our health care affordability, public school lackluster results, and the list goes on. One of the solutions to the problems is to place term limits on Congress. The 22nd Amendment to the Constitution places term limits on the presidency of the United States. It's now time for another amendment that limits the period of service for the U.S. Congress. Term limits for Congress would infuse the House and Senate with a regular influx of new people from the states with fresh ideas and solutions to our nation's biggest problems. It would decrease the concentration of power in Washington, D.C. by giving more citizens the chance to serve in Congress. It would help members of Congress to take their jobs more seriously since they will be required to return home and live with the laws that they helped to pass or live with the problems they failed to solve while in Congress. It would also reduce the influence of special interest groups and lobbyists on politicians. I can imagine as you're all sitting here, that there are members of the Ohio legislature who might aspire to serve in the U.S. Congress. A term limits amendment would only increase the opportunities to serve in Congress with more turnover in Washington, D.C. Some have expressed concern that term limits on Congress could backfire if the period of service is too short. This concern was reflected in the results of an Article 5 convention simulation that occurred last summer with actual state legislators. In that simulated convention, the proposed maximum length of service was set at 24 years. I think most would agree that 24 years of service in Congress is more than enough time to make meaningful contributions to our country. In closing, our country faces significant problems in sending the same politicians back to Washington, D.C 
every election cycle is not working. Placing term limits on Congress through an amendment to the Constitution will help improve that situation. Term limits on Congress is very popular with the American people. A recent poll found that 80% of Americans support it. Term limits would increase the opportunity for more Ohioans to serve in Congress, including, including members from the Ohio legislature. For these reasons, please support passage of HJR 3. Thank you. Have any Ms. Mitchell, thank you for your testimony. Mm -hmm. Are there any questions? All right, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, is Ed Mulholland, call Ed Mulholland next. Thank you. Vice Chair Thomas, Ranking, Mem Ranking Member Humphrey, members of the committee. My name is Ed Mulholland. I'm from Zanesville, Ohio, House District 97. I'm a volunteer with Convention of States Action, and we seek your support of HGR 3 uh, to address runaway overreach of the federal government. The Declaration of Independence was an announcement to the world that the colonists could and would manage their own affairs. It was a statement establishing the right of individual liberty and local sovereignty. The Constitution followed securing the liberty of the people while granting the federal government only 27 enumerated powers. Later, the Bill of Rights reinforced, the Tenth Amendment reinforced the limits on federal power. James Madison, an author of the Constitution and fourth president of the United States, put it this way. The powers delegated to the by the Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those of state governments are numerous and indefinite. By dividing power between the federal and state governments, the framers built a safeguard into our political system to restrain federal overreach. This division of power is called federalism, and sadly, it's been dying a slow death for decades. The death of federalism has led to a concentration of power at the federal level. As the power of the federal government expands, so expands the necessary regulation and control that steals the very liberties the government is supposed to protect. Why is federalism on its deathbed? Prior to the New Deal era, local economic activities such as labor, manufacturing, agriculture, mining, were widely understood to be under the purview of state governments. They were not considered part of interstate commerce. Then, Supreme Court decisions like upholding the National Labor Relations Act in 1937 and Wickard v. Filburn in 1942 dramatically changed the interpretation of the Constitution's Commerce Clause, enlarging the federal government's lawmaking authority at the expense of state sovereignty. With its new expanded authority, the government grew so much Congress was forced to defer a great deal of authority to newly created agencies. And today, the number of statutes passed by our elected representatives in Congress is dwarfed by the number of regulations created by federal agencies staffed by unelected bureaucrats. The Supreme Court's arbitrary reinterpretation of the Commerce Clause can be corrected with an amendment to the Constitution. Doing so will rightly shift power out of Washington, D.C. and back to the states where it belongs and where our country's founders intended it to be. This will help revive federalism and the balanced power between federal and state governments. Another contributor to the death of federalism was the United States v. Butler decision, heard about a little bit earlier, which reinterpreted the General Welfare Clause. Prior to this ruling, the General Welfare Clause was interpreted to mean that Congress could only spend money in service of its 27 enumerated powers. It could not spend money on activities states could spend money on. For example, states can spend money on education, welfare, medical, and retirement programs. 
Accordingly, Congress had no jurisdiction for such programs. However, after this Supreme Court ruling, the floodgates were opened and Congress was permitted to spend money on essentially anything it wanted. This Supreme Court reinterpretation of general welfare clause can also be corrected through an amendment to the Constitution that clarifies the clause according to the framers' intentions. Pandora's box of federal government expansion can, in fact, be closed with such an amendment. Now, some of you might be wondering, what would happen to federal programs Americans have come to rely upon, like Social Security? Those programs don't have to end. Their administration could shift from federal government to state governments. The programs could be more closely tailored to the particular needs of each state. As our elected officials, you would be in control. And we all know states tend to be more efficient with their resources and more responsive to their citizens' needs. In summary, federalism is all but dead in our country due to an ever-expanding federal government that treats states as federal agencies. This is a dangerous slide toward the concentration of absolute power at the federal level, concentrated power that always leads to tyranny and loss of individual liberty. This imbalance of power is a result of Supreme Court decisions that reinterpreted the Constitution taking power from states and giving it to the federal government. To preserve state sovereignty and the liberties of the people, we must restore federalism. HCR 3 calls for a convention to give states the opportunity to at least discuss this important issue. I urge you to support HCR 3. Thank you for your testimony. Other questions for the witness? Representative Brown. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, sir, for your testimony. In your um, written remarks, you indicate that the uh, Article 5 Convention will be called for the purpose of proposing amendments <clears throat> to address the, quote, threatening overreach of the federal government, quote. What you see as the threatening overreach of the government, millions and millions of other patriotic Americans see as the appropriate exercise of federal power. Do you understand that we have this divergent point of view in America? Uh, I, do I do understand, uh, but I think that we don't necessarily disagree on the things that should be accomplished. We disagree on who should be implementing those things. So these things that are happening at the federal level uh, are things that we could be dealing with locally. Ohio ought to be able to decide for itself how to do you know, any number of things that the federal government has taken from it. We had 13 independent sovereign states come together and agree to have this federal government uh, over it to manage some things that they needed managed between themselves. They didn't voluntarily give up all their sovereignty and just say, okay, we're just going to administer whatever you tell us to do. So, uh, yeah, you know, again, Social Security, uh, you know, welfare programs, all of those things can be handled locally. And by the way, I would argue that the money spent would be spent more efficiently we already know, like, if you take look at community block grants, uh, up to like 70% when you count how much administration the federal government's allowed to charge, how much administration the state governments are allowed to charge, and how much administration the local government can take off the top of a community grant. And then the amount of administration the person actually implementing the program can take, up to 70% of the dollars go to administration. If we could cut out the Fed, you know, we might get to 50% actually getting down to doing what we want done. Follow up to your continue. I'm sure you're aware because you seem like a very intelligent, informed individual that um, this debate about states' rights, state power versus the federal power is the debate as old as the nation itself. 
that even before the Constitution was enacted, the Federalist Papers, uh, prepared by a number of different uh, of the founding fathers, including Hamilton and Madison, debated vigorously the role of the federal government versus the state government, the role, the uh, the power and influence of the federal versus state government. Um, and, and you mentioned in your comment, in your uh, testimony, um, we need to go back to the framers' intention. And the, the I believe that uh, a close examination of the actual historical record demonstrates that the framers' intention is always very difficult to ascertain because different framers had different views, different intentions, different purposes, uh, and different ideas about the best way to go. And they fought vigorously on these things. Um, and, and so I assume you're you're aware of that historical uh, antecedent, correct? And I think we should, we should to the chairman, to Representative Brown, I'd love to see us have that conversation again and confirm where exactly we think this country should be headed. And an Article 5 convention gives a chance for legislatures, legislators like yourself to send delegates and have a conversation. And then, of course, when we send these proposed amendments, if any get a majority vote at the convention, out to the states, there'll be a huge national discussion about all these issues. Final comment, Continue. if I may. Thank you, Chair. I, I appreciate that. I do. Um, but it seems to me that uh, this debate has been going on since prior to 1787, and it's still going on. I'm not sure the convention that you refer to would be the panacea that you believe it to be. So I'm not so sure I agree with that. But I definitely I appreciate your position, and and your certainly your your right to espouse those positions. And I and uh, I thank you for your testimony. Thank you. Seeing no further questions. Uh, our next uh, presenter would be Roger Gibbs. Mr. Gibbs, thank you for being with us today. Appreciate your patience. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Yeah, so my name today is, uh, oh, sorry, Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. My name is Roger Gibb. I'm from Mason, Ohio, House District 56. So in 2022, the Trafalgar Group conducted a nationally representative survey of American adults. What they found is that 66% of Americans supported an Article 5 convention for proposing amendments to rein in the federal government. Even so, we know that there are people on both sides of the aisle who are opposed to what we're, what we're doing. And some of them are under the impression that, it, that a convention of states would be dangerous. This fear stems from opposition claims that states can't be trusted to amend the Constitution. They contend that states might try to entirely replace the Constitution or scrap some or all of the Bill of Rights. Now, to put this in perspective, let's, let's just imagine that you go skydiving with a friend, okay? You both get up into the airplane, you jump out together, and after free falling for a couple of minutes, you realize it's time to release your parachutes. So you reach back and you both pull that strap, but nothing happens. Parachutes don't deploy. You both panic for a minute and then you remember your training you've got a second parachute in your backpack. So you reach back to deploy that second parachute, but your friend screams at you, don't deploy it, it's too dangerous. Um, confused, you look down at the ground, it's coming up very fast. You look back at your friend and you say, the second chute is there in case the first chute doesn't work. It's for our safety, do you have a better idea? Your friend looks back and says, no, but don't do it, it's too dangerous. Now, I know that sounds absurd, but that is pretty much what our opposition says about this effort. We, the American people, we're the parachutists, 
And we're faced with a very dangerous situation. Our federal government is literally bankrupting our country, among other things. And Congress is the first parachute. And if Congress were listening to we the people, they would propose reasonable amendments like a balanced budget amendment. But Congress refuses because Congress is part of the problem. Now, our second parachute is for states to propose amendments. Yet our opponents say, no, that's too dangerous. Do they have a viable alternative? No, but they're insistent on stopping us from deploying our proverbial second parachute. Now, we know from previous experience that in upcoming committee hearings, you're going to hear claims from our opposition uh, that proposing amendments to the Constitution via Article 5 is too dangerous. At the end of the day, you're all going to have to decide what to do with that. Convention of States and the people who are testifying before you here today, we rely on a team of nationally acclaimed attorneys to help ascertain and confirm the safety of the Article 5 process. Two of our most prominent attorneys are Michael Ferris, whom you've heard from today, and Robert Nadelson. Since you already know, have met uh, Dr. Ferris, I will tell you about Robert Nadelson. So he is a law professor of 25 years. His research has been cited repeatedly at the US Supreme Court, federal appeals courts, and state Supreme Courts. He's widely acknowledged to be the nation's preeminent scholar on the Article 5 process, having written the only legal treaties on the subject. So I hold your, his book in my hand, The Law of Article 5. He is the author of no fewer than 40, that's 4040 articles on, on the Constitution in peer-reviewed legal journals. Five of those articles were published just in the past 13 years, specifically on the Constitution amending process. Now, collectively, Michael Ferris and Robert Nadelson have written more than 300 pages. Okay, I have them printed here, front and back, 300 pages of in legal journals over the past 13 years to specifically debunk claims from our opposition that somehow following the legal lawful process of Article 5 is too dangerous. Now, because these writings were peer reviewed, they were rigorously evaluated by other constitutional experts for historical accuracy, two centuries of Article 5 usage, and a long line of Article 5 court decisions extending from 1798 to the present century. And so in conclusion, if you, when you hear and read opposition testimony in the upcoming committee hearings, we urge you to evaluate their claims that following Article 5 of the Constitution is dangerous against the following two criteria. First criteria, are their claims simply statements of opinion or have they been vetted by real constitutional experts through the peer review publication process of legal journals like the writings of Michael Ferris and Robert Nadelson? Criteria number two, are their sources contemporary? Meaning, are they from this century? Put more simply, is their material outdated? This is important because our opposition likes to cite sources from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when activist judges and professors favoring big government made unfounded claims to stop states from amending the Constitution. If so, these claims have very likely been debunked by the 21st century scholarly writings of Michael Ferris and Robert Nadelson. So putting it simply, if our opposition can't get their provocative claims peer-reviewed by real constitutional experts and published in reputable law review journals, then I would submit to you that they're not credible 
and you shouldn't take them seriously. If you hold our opposition to these high standards, what you're going to find is that very few, if any, of their claims are worthy of your serious consideration. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Other questions for the witness? I have maybe one. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the I've heard the argument before that uh, you know we don't really have to worry about a convention of states because as as we get towards 33 states, 32 states approving, you know that will get the attention of Congress or leadership that uh, something will happen. Yes. What's your thought on that, if you don't mind? Well, sharing? I I'm not an attorney, but I think it is very likely because I don't think Congress wants to lose complete control of things, and so. So if we get to 33 states, maybe Congress will find religion of, of financial responsibility and decide to impose or propose its own balanced budget amendment or some other reasonable thing. So I, th I think it is quite possible, but that's just me. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, so next we have Michael Mowry. Mr. Mowry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. My name is Mike Mowry. I'm from Ashland, Ohio, House District 67. My remarks today are intended to refute the false claim by many that oppose the call for an Article 5 convention that the Constitutional Convention of 1787 was a runaway convention. Some opponents make claim that an Article 5 convention held today would run away like the last Article 5 convention. This is wrong in two regards. First, there has never been an Article 5 convention for proposing amendments. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 was not convened under the auspices of the Articles of Confederation. The word convention does not even appear in the Articles of Confederation. An Article 5 convention, however, is prescribed and structured in our current U.S. Constitution. Second, the authority to propose our Constitution to Convention of 1787 was largely within the scope of the broad commissions granted by most state legislatures to their commissioners. The demise of the Confederation was widely expected, even welcomed by many, prior to the convention. These included members of the Confederation Congress when Congress recommended that a convention be held. See Congress's resolution in Madison's journal entry that day that, uh, in the attached summary. The time allotted for this testimony, which is an analysis of 12 years of history, does not allow for anything other than a short verbal outline of the topic. So I've attached to this, this written testimony a summary with hyperlinks to the source material. Included with this, with the attachments, are scholarly peer-reviewed articles by Dr. Michael Ferris and Professor Robert Nadelson, which you heard reference to earlier. Uh, Dr. Ferris's um, article is regarding the Convention of 1787, and Robert Professor Nadelson's is regarding conventions of the founding era. You also find in the attachments full copies of the calls to the convention by each of the states that sent commissioners to the convention, as well as a copy of the articles. Confederation. It's important for any review of why the Confederation was failing and why there was a des desperate need for reform to understand the context of why many, if not most, of the participants in the political system of the day deemed that reform was needed, but not possible within the limitations that constrained the Confederation Congress. This context is important as an assertion is often made that a convention for proposing amendments cannot be safely held in our current times of turmoil as it was during the calm times after the war when the Convention of 1787 was conducted. This assertion is faulty in two regards. First, it can be noted that the Convention Clause of Article 5 
and our current constitution was specifically included with expectation it would be utilized during difficult times when an intransigent national government resisted the will of the people. Second, the convention of 1787 was conducted during anything but calm times. The states in the Confederacy were far from untroubled. These troubles spanned from the early days of Confederation in June of 1783 when Congress was chased out of Philadelphia by segments of their own army, right up to the tax rebellions culminating in the infamous and deadly Shays Rebellion, where rebelling farmers and veterans received volleys of grape shot from the cannon of hired militia just months prior to the convention. Attempts to reform the Articles of, of um, Confederation were attempted as late as August of 1786 after the Annapolis Convention with seven amendments proposed by Charles Dickinson. A, vo uh, a vote on these proposed amendments was not even taken due to the belief that they could not be passed. It is in the context of this environment that 12 of the states recognized the need to call and the Confederation Congress to rec recommend that a convention be held to reform the structure of the national government. Points refu refuting the myth of the runaway. The convention of 1787 was not a runaway convention. This suggestion is a slander on our founding fathers, the implication they were either incompetent or duplicit in the conduct and outcome of the convention. The convention of 1787 was not constrained by the Articles of Confederation, which was in part the point for calling the convention to effect reforms that could not be achieved by Congress. The original suggestion of the Grand Convention of 1787 was made by delegates at the Annapolis Convention of 1786 in recognition that broad powers outside the means of Congress were needed to cure the defects of their present frame of government. The Annapolis Resolution proposed that among the powers granted, the commissioners of the subsequent convention would be discussing all such alterations and further provisions as being necessary to render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of the Union. The Convention of 1787 was not a runaway. This is evidenced by the broad language of the resolutions of by at least 10 of the 12 state legislatures, excerpts and complete copies these can found in the attachments to this testimony. 10 of the state resolutions largely copied the broad scope suggested by the Annapolis Resolution. Contemporaneous correspondence, which is included in the attachments of political leaders and participants prior to the start of the convention in May 25th of 1787, clearly show it was expected that the commissioners at the convention would have broad powers. A sampling of their correspondence, which is included in the attachments prior to the commencement of the convention, are things such as Madison to Jefferson in August of 1786. Many gentlemen, both within and without Congress, wish to make this meeting subservient to a plenipotentiary convention for amending the Confederation. Uh, Madison to Jefferson, December 4th, from the Virginia State Legislature. The recommendation for the meeting at Annapolis of a plenipotentiary convention in Philadelphia in May next has been well received in the assembly here. I won't read the rest of the citations. You could read those in your attachments. Uh, the Virginians, who were the first state to, to make a call to convention, clearly expected the commissioners to have broad powers to, to uh, replace the Articles of Confederation. They, show, they basically showed up um, and on the second or third day of the convention, they, they already had the Virginia plan in place. And Charles Pickney of South Carolina also had the Pickney plan, both of which were strong nationalist plans that could only be replaced by only replace the uh, Articles of Confederation. The outline of the Virginia plan was fully laid out to George Washington in a letter from Madison on April 16th, a month prior to the convention. 
In closing, I'd say it can be observed in most of the records of the state ratifying conventions, the general sense was not the commissioners did not exceeded their authority and was not a runaway convention. The framers delivered the possibility of a need to reform that was unattainable by other means. By the minor amounts of grousing by some anti-federalists about the commissioners exceeding their authority, it was recognized by most people that what Washington described as temporizing application would have been inadequate to prevent the disintegration of the Federation and allow the means to integrate the states into a lasting republic. This acceptance, I think, was not just because of the needed elimination of the inadequacies of the Articles as a functioning central government stipulation that ratification be by the people within the states, making it truly a, a, a constitution of we the people. More detail in the source material and it's with hyperlinks to the source material availability in the attachments. Thank you for your testimony. I will say, Mr. Mallory, that you worried me a little bit when I saw 263 pages. These are mostly, uh, but flipping, these are mostly Dr. Ferris's fault. Yeah, flipping through the attachments, uh, I will, I will try and read those. Those are pretty interesting, very interesting stuff. So I encourage everybody to read that at some point. A lot of data. If your hyperlinks don't work, let me know if they got stripped away. Yeah, it's really good stuff. Are there questions for the witness? Thank you. Thank you. Next, we have Paul Skisk, or I mean Paul Sisk. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Thank you. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Thomas, and Ranking Member Humphrey, members of the committee. I am Paul Sisk. I come from Hamilton Township, Warren County, Ohio, District 55. I want to begin with a quote. If you're reading, it's not in my material. I think you need something fresh. It appears that I could not do your job sitting all day listening and how you do it. I want to commend you. I don't know how you can absorb it all and, and hold it all in. I think your posterior is probably speaking to you. We have padded seats. You and the audience do not. So uh, sorry about that. A nice luxury. Wayne Blanchard said, whenever you're making a presentation, state the issue simply, handle objections fairly, drive a strong conclusion. Most of the things that are in my testimony have been covered. So I'm not going to spend time reading it to you. I know you say thank you very much. But I do want to convey to you, as you should see from these people who have given up their days of work, as have I've taken a day off of work, and the hours that have been spent in preparation and rehearsal for this day. To me, this is not about labels. This is about patriotism and country and doing the right thing. This is why my vote counts. And this is why I'm here today. My specific remarks are intended to dispel the claim that a Article 5 Convention of States would create a runaway convention. And things from that would result in a loss of Bill of Rights or, in fact, our entire Constitution. And, of course, you've already heard comments about that. My sources are the same. Um, Dr. Ferris, Dr. Nicholson. An Article 5 convention for amending the Constitution is just simply about 50 states getting together, convening a meeting, and talking about ways that we can make America better. Amendments. This is how we're supposed to do it. Multi-state meetings and conventions have been going on for years. In fact, more than 350 years. And in the 40 multi-state conventions that we have on record in America, none have resulted in a runaway convention. Not one. Not even a hint of one. Zero. 
In the case of uh, Article, 5 con uh, Article 5 conventions, there are nine safeguards to ensure that we are meeting the intentions of the framers of the Constitution. I'm just going to hit them briefly. First order of business is to elect the right leaders. It's up to you. That's why we elected you. You choose the leaders. We're counting on you. Do the best you can. You choose how it works. We're counting on you. Safeguard number two. Opposition claims that delegates will have plenipotentiary, that is, unlimited power of the convention. And that's not true. They only have the power that you give them. If you give them the power, then you are responsible for what they're going to do. So the onus is on you. Number three. Well, let me go back to it because I think this is important to state. This HRJ3 states that a convention of states for proposing amendments to the Constitution of the United States convened pursuant to this application shall be limited to consideration of the topics herein specified and no other. So whatever you choose, right, your delegates are going to only be able to talk about that thing. All right, and my safeguard number three is there's no provision in the Constitution for replacing the Constitution. It's ridiculous. Number four, in order for an amendment to become officially proposed at a convention, 26 states have to vote for it. And since 34 plus states will have requested the convention, then there's no way an amendment for rescinding any component, for example, of the Bill of Rights. That could not happen. 26 states getting together, you know there's no way that that could happen. The 34 plus states that requested the convention would never vote for it. Number five, if, if by some means an amendment was proposed that fell outside of the scope of the convention and what your delegates are supposed to be doing, Congress would be obligated to settle, would be obligated to select the mode of ratification and then the process would stop. It would kill any invalid proposal. Number six, the Constitution stipulates that after an amendment is officially proposed at an Article V convention, it only becomes the part of the Constitution if it's ratified by 38 states. We've already heard this argument. Number seven, if a delegate were to violate their duty or their instructions, they can be recalled. And in HJR 3, it states the Ohio General Assembly may provide further instructions to its delegates and may recall its delegates at any time for a breach of duty or for a violation of the instructions provided, end quote. It's there. Number eight, any, in many states, their resolutions requesting an Article 5 have explicit limitations on the delegate's authority. And because this is in the resolution, I'm going to read it, quote, the application is made with the express understanding that an amendment that in any way seeks to amend, modify, or repeal any provision of the Bill of Rights shall not be authorized for consideration at any stage. This application shall be void ab initio if ever used at any stage to consider any change to the provision of the Bill of Rights, end quote. And the last safeguard is that states can pass statutes pertaining to Article V convention delegates faithfully following those instructions. For example, Indiana has passed legislation with this provision, quote, 
A delegate or alternate delegate who knowingly or intentionally votes or attempts to vote outside the scope of the instructions established or the limits placed by the General Assembly commits a level six felony. America has a rich history of multi-state conventions, more than 40, over 350 years, never had a single case of a runaway convention, not one, ever. And I've given you some safeguards here to ensure that an Article V convention complies with the Constitution. I have to tell you that uh, we are all concerned, and you are too. You're an American. You're an Ohioan. You read the papers. You hear the news. We're all concerned about our future. I got four little grandbabies. I'm concerned about their future. I want, to, I want them to grow up in the kind of America that we have grown up in to enjoy the same benefits and privileges. And if we don't pull back on some of the things that are out of our control at the moment, we're not gonna see that become a reality. I think it is time that we exercise our constitutional rights to restore justice, discipline, and order to our republic. And I'm asking you to help us by supporting HJR3. And I am grateful for your service. Thank you for your testimony. I'll probably say this again as we wrap up, but uh, uh, having having led some of these discussions in past and in the Senate, um, I have yet to have somebody come present that didn't that I didn't uh, think loved their country uh, as much as their family, and that's that's true of all of you here today. And thank you for that, uh, Representative Graham. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, thank you so much for coming today and speaking on this. So I wanted to go back to your safeguard number seven, okay. which is the Ohio General Assembly uh, may provide further instructions and may recall its delegates at any time um, for a breach of duty. So I know that um, kind of the point of the convention is that the, the the feeling around that states don't have the rights that they used to have, but there is a, there is a checks and balances in in our government around uh, states and federal government, and then we go to the court. So we're really, where is that checks and balances around if a, dele a delegation is doing the right thing or the delegation is maybe breaching their duty? Where, where does that fall in that checks and balances? Well, I think in this case, if, oh, if the Ohio delegation does not follow the instructions that have been given to them by the legislature, then the legislature has the power to pull them back. Now, another consideration too is the example was given in New York when Alexander Hamilton, he had to follow the instructions that were given and it took all three making the vote. Two left, he was left with no other choice but to participate and yet withhold his vote. So I think the responsibility lies with the legislature, which is where it belongs to begin with. This is part of bringing the power back to the state. And while we're on that point, I would also suggest, too, that as was referenced before, you know, the federal government, and the state government, it's a balance. But the problem is, is that we have balance issues. We have to balance our budget. Federal government does not. And if we don't take back this control, then the federal government will continue to go down this same rat hole. Follow. So the the legislature, so us, we provide that, but then if if we're saying someone says we're misstepping, it's the courts, right? So is that checks and balances going with the courts? So say some of the delegation says we're, we're fine, we didn't do anything wrong. Like, does that go to the courts then? 
as that checks and balance. That's beyond my knowledge, so I'm going to pass on that to let Dr. Ferris answer it. From the chair, um, could we get that information? How would that check? Yeah, thank you. If you'd share that, if you'd share that with the uh, chairman, I'll make sure everybody in the committee gets to see that. Certainly will. Also. Thank you. Thank you for Representative your Brown with a question. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, sir, for your testimony. Appreciate it. Um, you stated that um, there, those folks who are here today in support of HGR 3 are filled with patriotism and love of country, and I have absolutely no reason to disagree with that or think that isn't true. I know it is. Sure. Do you understand, though, that folks who may disagree with the HGR uh, 3 who do not think it's a good idea, they also are patriotic Americans who also love their country and also want, want what's best for their I have five grandchildren. Do you understand that, sir? I do indeed, and I respect that they also can share the same feeling of patriotism and country, love of country. They can also share the same love of other things, love of God, love of participation, love of education. I think what happens here is, is that we're providing a mechanism for all of us to share together by pretty, putting together a bipartisan group of delegates who get together and they talk about it, the legislature talks about it, and then we as all the states come together. So I'm, I don't think I'm, I don't sense that this is a, a partisan issue. I think that everybody, I think really everybody desires to have these basic three things. And we may have some fine tuning of some of the wording, but the basic three principles, I think, apply with everyone. I, I may be wrong. <laughs> Continue. Follow up. Thank you, Chair. You know, you talk about giving power to the legislature to kind of oversee how this works so that it works well. And I just want you to understand and take, and take this into consideration. The legislature you're talking about, the Ohio legislature, is a result of gerrymandered districts. We have 67 Republicans, 32 Democrats, which do not reflect the percentage of R's and D's in the state. And there were five Supreme Court decisions of a Republican-dominated Supreme Court with a Republican Chief Justice, don't say I'm wrong, I'm right, who said that this was unconstitutional on five occasions. Five occasions. So what you have is a gerrymandered legislature that didn't, does not represent the people in defiance of the Ohio Supreme Court. And that's the body that you are entrusting to do the right thing, and I just have concerns about that. And I appreciate your concern. I can tell you that I'm left with what I have. This is the mechanism that I have. I, if, I, if there are a way to you know, run the magic wand over, we could do it differently. But if there is another mechanism, then let's look at it. But in this case, I have to go back to the fact that these are common principles. I can't see where any of this is going to be detrimental to anyone, regardless of your label or stripe or background or ethnicity or any other political issue. I think we all share the same desire to have a better future. Other questions for the witness? Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Next, we have Chad Gump with testimony. Mr. Gump, thanks for your patience today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. My name is Chad Gump, and I'm from House District 49 in North Canton, Ohio. Um, today, my remarks are to re 
refute two of the common claims that are made by some people that do oppose a convention of states. Uh, and appreciate everyone's time here today and have been asked to try to get the things out of there that we've already discussed. I'll do the best I can on that, okay? Uh, the first claim that you might not have thought about is that somebody said, well, there's absolutely no rules in the Constitution for how to run an Article V convention. So it's a good question. And then the question becomes, well, I could go anywhere without any rules. So reverting back to that Professor Nadelson that you heard him talk about a little bit earlier, uh, he explains the Marquette Law Review in an article from 2020. And I want to quote, say it exactly the way he said it. So I'll try to keep it moving, okay? He said, competent constitutional scholars do not assume a phrase has no meaning merely because the Constitution and the framers' records do not define it. The usual reason for the lack of definition is the term is so well known uh, and understood that there's no need to explain it. Things like uh, illustrated uh, phrases like uh, original jurisdiction or trial by jury, those weren't originally uh, explained out well either, but they were well known. Um, so really, that, that for that reason, the founders didn't really put a lot of time into waste, uh, wasting space, but taking space out of the Constitution. The other thing that I found very interesting is that there were 11 multi-state constitutions already uh, uh, in process or completed uh, just after the signing of the declarations. And so we already had a background on what they, uh, what the rules would be. And I'm not, some of those we already talked about, I'm going to hit on it real quick. We already talked about the state legislators are going to select who's going to be involved in it. We kind of talked about that a little bit. Uh, we talked about the voting. Uh, and I do want to click on one thing at the end was if the majority of states did not endorse a particular solution, it just wasn't adopted, it wasn't proposed. So, if, you know, kind of maybe says, explains itself, but I uh, wanted you to know that. So there really isn't any claim that there are no rules for an Article V convention. Another claim uh, would be the fact that since Congress calls the convention, well, why don't they just take it over and run it in the ground or do whatever they want? But he explained also in that that it had been very clearly through multi-state conventions seen before that uh, they could determine the time and the place and the purpose, but that's as far as they could go. So that was, um, that was what they were, uh, that's what their responsibility was. And he further over uh, clarifies that the uh, the overriding purpose of the state application and convention procedure is to bypass Congress. So if Congress could structure the convention, this would largely defeat the overriding purpose, which makes sense. Originally, if purpose, Congress were to dictate uh, the state legislators how to select commissioners, uh, then the Congress would be invading the incidental authority of the states as well. So it's kind of shown that time, place, and subject matter is their place in it. So without that, there really isn't a, a claim that um, they would override uh, the power of a, a convention. So I try to pick and choose what you guys maybe hadn't already heard. So uh, thank you for everything. Uh, thank you for your time. Does anybody have any questions for myself or possibly someone in my group? Other questions could answer better. Thank you for your testimony. We appreciate you. it. Thank and uh, we appreciate summarizing at this point in the day. Uh, next, we have John Laws. Mr. Laws. 
Thank you for being with us. Thank you, and I will summarize as well. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, members of the committee, my name is John Laws. Yes, it really is, L-A-W-S. <laughs> I'm from South Lebanon, Ohio, House District 56. Um, since there's been some lively discussion on, on we as Ohioans, I will throw in that I'm a graduate of Ohio High School. I'm also a double graduate of Ohio Public University. So I've been around a while. I'm going to skip through a few things here, so if you're following along on your iPads, uh, I may skip a few paragraphs. But uh, today, I was going to discuss uh, an opposition statement that we often get about amending the Constitution will provide no benefit because the federal government does not follow the Constitution now anyway. Well, I can appreciate the federal government doesn't follow the Constitution now, and I know I've expressed that sentiment myself on several occasions. While I am not a constitutional attorney, nor a constitutional scholar, I've learned that to comprehend the subject, one must first recognize that the federal government is not required to follow the original constitution as written by our founders. Rather, it's required to follow the constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court of the United States. That's a major difference. The improper accumulation of power by the federal government and the departure from the following constitution as originated by our framers has risen in a sense from the constitution itself. The constitution permits the federal judiciary to be the final arbiter, interpreter of the constitution because the framers did not have a great deal of experience in the practice of judicial review. They did not assign adequate checks and balances on judiciary's branch of government, did not foresee how the Supreme Court would legislate from the bench. So once you understand this, it becomes clear how the federal government can justify some of its actions. The Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court today is the problem. This interpretation allows the federal government to engage in undeclared wars, provide government agencies with the capability to spy on us, the US citizens, you, massive federal debt and devaluation of our currency. We've all lived through a lot of that in the last two years. Executive agreements with foreign powers without Senate ratification, which is a direct violation of the US Constitution. And the deregulation of rulemaking to unelected bureaucrats. We've had that discussion on many topics by my compatriots here today. I'm gonna skip the next three or four paragraphs and go to the summary, because again, you have a cushion and I don't, and I'm getting a little tired. <laughs> so uh, in conclusion, the claim that many of the Constitution provide no benefit because the federal government doesn't abide with the Constitution anyway, is a bit misleading because it naively overlooks the fact that it's not the original Constitution it's the one approved, authorized, and promoted by the Supreme Court. Through changes to the existing Constitution using an Article V convention, we can resolve most of this, or at least improve our lot in life and where we are with everything that we live and do. So it 
could return us to a separation of powers that's more acceptable. It could return us to a closer to the federation, the federalism that our country was originally founded on. And I would add in doing this research and talking to many people, um, I probably knocked on 500 doors last year, Republicans, Democrats, non-committed. And at least 80% of those doors I knocked on approved of the three principles we're bring, presenting to you today, Article 5. And we had many lively conversations about all the things that are going on. And I heard some of those exact feelings expressed from those folks out in the field, too, on both sides of the aisle. So we need to do something. We need to move forward as a country. And we do have a huge divide in front of us. And a person mentioned that today. Let's, let's try to build a bridge across that divide. Let's use the Article 5 process to get that done, to make progress, to push this forward. Because if we continue to ignore the ability that we're given in the Constitution to make that attempt, we're not going to go any further than we are today. Thank you for having me. I'll answer questions as I might be able. Other questions for the witness? Representative Brown. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony, sir. You're talking about the role of uh, the Supreme Court in interpreting the Constitution, the constitutional provisions, and your um, assessment. I take it that uh, the court has exceeded its proper uh, scope and authority and legislated from the bench. You say you're not a lawyer. I've been a lawyer 42 years, and my observation is that if someone agrees with a Supreme Court decision, they tend to believe that the court. Uh, made a rational, reasoned decision based upon the facts and the law and that their decision was well within their scope and authority and purview. But if they disagree with the decision, they tend to say that uh, the court was legislating from the bench. And uh, it, is that, have you experienced that as well? Or am I looking at it from not your vantage point? I probably actually see it more as you see it from Again, not being an attorney, I've not, I spent very little time in my life, in fact, almost no time in my life in a court. So <laughs> I have a, you know, can't pull an immediate, you know, sort of one-to-one -to, -one to that. Uh, my observation is, in, in the reading and study that I've done, uh, this is sort of a, a process of death by a thousand cuts. It started back in the 1804, 1810 era and just little nicks and cuts all the way through. It really accelerated under FDR. And there are probably two dozen different decisions that were made that really went against the General Welfare Clause in particular and the Commerce Clause. And then that sort of has continued through where we are today. Were some of those things necessary? Absolutely. Were some of those things good for the general welfare? Absolutely. Some of the reverse may be as well true. So that's my opinion as a citizen of this state and this country. Again, I'm not an attorney. I, I chose not to spend time in, in courts and instead invested my career in technology and making sure you had things like you have today to follow me along when I'm talking. Thank you for your testimony. Appreciate you being with us. Next, we have Susan Dunn. Ms. Dunn.
Thank you for sticking with us today. Of course. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, Ranking Member Humphreys, and members of the committee. I am Susan K. Dunn from Westchester, Ohio, House District 45. I am a supporter of Convention of States and HJR 3. One of the frustrating things that I have experienced in my time with Convention of States is how opposition has stood up in hearings like this one and used only partial quotes to mislead the committee. Today, I want to address one of the false claims that they have made before and will probably make again. It is the claim that the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia was opposed to Article V conventions. To achieve their objective, our opposition has cherry-picked a statement from Antonin Scalia while ignoring other statements that he made. During an interview with the Kalb Report in 2014, Justice Scalia was asked the question, if you could amend the Constitution in one way, what would it be and why? He responded saying, quote, I certainly would not want a constitutional convention. I mean, whoa, who knows what would come out of that? Then Scalia continued to speak. Yet opposition ends their quotation of his comments right there. They want you to believe that when Antonin Scalia said he would not want a constitutional convention, that he was referring to an Article V convention for proposing amendments. At first blush, it's not clear what he meant when he said constitutional convention. Was he referring to an Article V convention for proposing amendments or a constitutional convention for writing a whole new constitution like the one held in Philadelphia in 1787? Perhaps we can gain a clue from the rest of his statement. Here is his entire statement. Quote, I certainly would not want a constitutional convention. I mean, whoa, who knows what would come out of that? But if there were a targeted amendment that were adopted by the states, I think the only provision I would amend is the amendment provision. I figured out at one time what percentage of the populace could prevent an amendment to the Constitution. And if you take a bare majority of the smallest states by population, I think something less than 2% of the people could prevent a constitutional amendment. It ought to be hard, but it shouldn't be that hard, unquote. The full quotation makes it clear that Antonin Scalia supported amending the Constitution. In fact, he thought it should be easier to amend the Constitution by the states. This paints a very different picture. This suggests that when he was opposed to a constitutional convention, he was actually referring to a convention like the one in Philadelphia in 1787, not an Article V convention. Please note that our opposition will use the term CONCON when they're actually referring to an Article V convention for proposing amendments. There have only been two constitutional conventions in US history, the one in 1787 and one in 1861 for the Confederate Constitution. Our opposition's use of CONCON causes confusion and reinforces the mental image 
or fear of a junta, not merely pro to propose some amendments, but would rewrite the entire Constitution. Don't be fooled. This is intentionally and totally misleading. For additional clarity on Antonin Scalia's true opinion, we can look to a 1979 panel in which he participated. This was at the time of the balanced budget amendment drive. Regarding Article 5 convention specifically, he said, quote, the Congress is simply unwilling to give attention to many issues which it knows the people are concerned with, which issues involve restrictions upon the federal government's own power. I think the founders foresaw that, and they provided this method in order to enable a convention to remedy that. If the only way to get that convention is to take this minimal risk, then I think it is a reasonable risk to be undergone. I suggest if the only way to clarify the law, if the only way to remove us from utter bondage to the Congress is to take what I think to be a minimal risk on this limited convention, then let's take it, unquote. Antonin Scalia's own words. My, testi my testimony has included only this one example of our opposition partially quoting a historical figure or quoting them out of context in order to make it appear that they were opposed to Article V conventions, when in fact, the opposite is true. We see that the opposition's claim is a lie, a lie by omission. I hope that you have found my testimony informative and helpful. Thank you for your service to Ohio and for this opportunity to address the committee. Thank you for your testimony. Are there questions for the witness? Thank you so much for being with us. You are welcome. Thank you. Uh, next we have Diana Tellis. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. My name is Diana Tellis, and I'm from Westchester Township, House District 45. I'm, I'm a volunteer with Convention of States Action and seek your support of HJR3. I do talk fast, and I've trimmed this back, as painful as that was. Washington is broken, yet clearly has no plans to address our nation's problems with permanent solutions. We look to our country's bylaws for answers, our Constitution. The state amended convention under the authority of Article 5 of the Constitution offers a safe, civil, and effective response to the country's dire situation. Please be sure to carefully consider the words of HJR 3. It is straightforward, only four pages. Simply put, it is an application to Congress for a state amending convention. No more, no less. This is all we are asking you to support. We ask you not to be distracted by a few objectors. The passage of HJR 3 is far too important to allow its meaning to be overshadowed by doomsday predictions designed to impart fear in the hearts of Americans. Our opponents even resort to ad hominem attacks to discredit the reputations of convention of state leaderships as well as the reputation of our founders for hypothetically allowing a runaway convention. If legislators had to contend with such apocalyptic disinformation every time they considered legislation, they would be petrified by fear and accomplish nothing. Your focus must remain on the words of our resolution and not the fear-driven propaganda perpetuated for decades 
by opponents of Article 5. If our opponents cannot even get their nihilistic claims published in a reputable legal journal, reviewed by constitutional experts, then you should not take them seriously. To alleviate the worry of a runaway claim, consider the US Congress is now a permanent Article 5 convention. Article 5 authorizes Congress to propose amendments to the Constitution on any subject any day of the week. So it's hard to imagine a state convention could be more irresponsible than Congress. Yet there are no dangerous near misses and crazy amendments coming out of Congress. Why not? Congress is constrained by the political realities of ratification. 38 states must pass any proposed amendment. Since 1789, in fact, Congress has proposed more than 11,000 amendments to the Constitution. Of these, only 33 have been sent to the states for ratification. And only 27 have been ratified, the ones that were largely supported by the people. Proponents of Article 5, like me, have become disenchanted with the notion of just electing the right people next time or hoping state nullification will ever make any real difference. Unlike the opponents who tout softball antidotes to our country's problems, convention advocates seek to play a strong offense in the fight for American prosperity. Regardless of political party, the results of a state amending convention can be beneficial for you and me. A reduction in federal spending will allow us to keep a lot more of our money. We can curtail the growth of the national debt, which is now on the backs of our posterity. With real, without real action, even social safety nets that provide critical support during financial hardship will eventually be unsustainable. An amending convention of states is a safety feature packed into our con constitution by our founders for this moment in history. It is unethical for the states to deny their constitutional authority while Washington spends our country into oblivion. You raised your right hand to uphold the Constitution of the United States. This includes an Article 5 convention of the states which exist as part of that Constitution. Therefore, it is the duty of state legislatures to utilize this tool, not deny it. Our country still rests under the good protection of our founders' wisdom. Please believe in all the objective reasons this convention will be successful, not in the loose speculation that purports that it will not be. There were people who opposed the founders and the Declaration of Independence from Britain. The founders forged ahead anyway. There were people who opposed the abolition of slavery. Lincoln did it anyway. There were people who opposed JFK and his challenge to place a man on the moon. He issued the challenge anyway. Albert Einstein once said, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. We hope you will support moving HJR 3 forward to the House floor for a full vote. And thank you so much for your time today. You've all been really good sports. Thank you for your testimony. Representative Brown with a question. Thank you for your testimony. You said Washington is broken. How long has Washington been broken? It probably started as soon as the federal government was created. Yeah. Just sure. curious. Always a power struggle. We are mankind. That's how this works. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, next we have uh, Mark Pukita. Mr. Pukita, you do not have to talk as fast, but you're welcome to if you choose to. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I could do that. That was impressive. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, 
and members of the Ohio House Oversight Committee. Thank you for granting me the opportunity to speak on a subject that is very close to my heart. The Convention of States effort, particularly through the lens of entrepreneurship and personal freedom. My name is Mark Paquita and I am a successful entrepreneur from Dublin, Ohio, House District 11, who for over 20 years grew a business from scratch into about a $100 million annual revenue enterprise doing business in over 30 states and employing almost 800 employees, associates at sale, generating more than 3,500 jobs over those years. I know of what I speak. In the next few minutes, I aim to shed light on why this movement is not just a political endeavor, but a beacon of hope for fostering innovation, economic growth, and the safeguarding of our liberties. The Convention of States project seeks to invoke Article 5 of the United States Constitution, allowing a Convention of States to propose amendments to the Constitution. The initiative is born from a desire to address and curtail overreach of federal powers, restoring the balance of government and governance as originally intended by our founding fathers. But how does this relate to entrepreneurship and personal freedom? The connection is both profound and pivotal. At the heart of entrepreneurship is the spirit of innovation and the freedom to pursue one's vision. Entrepreneurs are the backbone of the American economy, driving growth, creating jobs, and pushing the boundaries of innovation. However, the extension, the overextension of federal regulations often creates a stifling environment for these pioneers. The complexity and breadth of federal laws can hamper small businesses and startups, which lack the resources of larger corporations to navigate these waters. By advocating for a convention of states, we seek to streamline governance, reduce unnecessary regulatory burdens, and foster an environment where entrepreneurship can flourish. Personal freedom is the cornerstone of American identity. It is the very principle that has attracted generations of immigrants to our shores, seeking the liberty to shape their destinies. Yet this foundational value is under threat when the federal government grows too large and too intrusive, as our federal government surely has. The Convention of States effort aims to re reinforce the rights of individuals and states, ensuring that personal freedoms are not eroded by distant bureaucracies. In doing so, it not only protects the liberty of today's citizens, but also safeguards those rights for future generations. By decentralizing power, the Convention of States would empower local and state governments to be the primary architects of policies affecting their citizens. This is particularly beneficial for entrepreneurship as it allows for a more tailored, responsive and efficient government. Localized decision-making better understands the unique challenges and opportunities within each community, enabling policies that are conducive to business growth and innovation. In conclusion, the Convention of States effort is not merely a political maneuver, 
It is a clarion call for the revival of the American dream. It seeks to create a fertile ground for entrepreneurs to thrive, unencumbered by excessive regulation, and to guarantee that the personal freedoms our forebears fought, fought for remain intact. By supporting this cause, we champion a future where innovation, prosperity, and freedom are the hallmarks of our nation. Thank you for your time, and I urge you to consider the profound positive impact the Convention of States will have on entrepreneurship and personal freedom in America. I recommend you pass Ohio House Joint Resolution 3 from Committee for Deliberation by the entire body of the Ohio House. I welcome your questions if you have any. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Representative Isaacson with a question. Thank you, Chair, and thank you for your testimony and congratulations on all your success. Thank you. Um, it sounds like your primary uh, reason for testifying and for supporting uh, the, the bill and the Convention of States is around deregulation and easing things for small businesses. Correct. So the Supreme Court uh, just recently heard arguments on uh, a case that would basically, if they rule in favor of the plaintiffs, my understanding is it would uh, essentially get rid of Chevron deference. Right. Uh, so do what you are describing in many ways. Uh, and so I guess my question for you, because it seems like if that's the goal, right, you're proposing taking a nuclear warhead to, to destroy a building, right? A convention of states could fundamentally alter the nature of the country when what you want is to deregulate for businesses. And so would the Supreme Court ruling in favor of what you're describing today sort of assuage you enough to not need the convention of states anymore? Uh, no, and, and the reason for it is, it, it, I understand the Chevron uh, 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 concept and why uh, it's being challenged, but since the Administrative Procedure Act went into effect in 1945, um, we, we've had a growth of what many U.S. citizens don't understand is administrative courts where judges are appointed by the executive branch. So there is an overstep of the executive branch through the APA into the powers of the judiciary. So citizens like you or I, if we run into a tax issue, we go to tax court first, we're compelled to do that. If we run into an environmental issue in our businesses, we're compelled to go to the environmental court first. And if we run into labor, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And then if we don't like the result there, then we get to go into the, the normal court system, part of the judicial branch. And that, that just puts a weight on us as citizens that's just insurmountable because the government has the, the full faith and treasury of all U.S. taxpayers to fight U.S. taxpayers when there are issues like that. Chevron is not going to fix all of that. I think what we need is a balanced budget to get rid of the over the bloated bureaucracy, and we need term limits to get fresh blood new ideas, and folks who are making a living off of not doing what their constituents want them to do, 
but what is in their best interest personally. Follow? Thank you for that. You mentioned the balanced budget piece, which you hadn't spoken about before. Do you have any concerns about the way that would absolutely gut our ability to fund our military and keep the country safe? No. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you all. Uh, next we have uh, Patrick Claude. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, members of this committee. First, I want to thank you for letting me stand up. My keister is getting rather sore. My name is Patrick Clouton. I'm from Lyons, Ohio, and, and represented in the Ohio House by Senator or Representative Scott Oslager. I've been a political activist for well over 30 years, helping in various campaigns for offices at the federal, state, and local level. First, I want to thank you for this hearing. And most of all, I want to thank you for being public officials. Yours is not an easy job. It takes a lot of courage to be out on that street campaign. So thanks, all of you. Today, I'm asking for your support of Article 5, a call for a limited convention proposing amendments to the United States Constitution to rectify injuries to our liberties. There will be much testimony on this subject, but I think the essential issue before us is being overlooked. Are we capable of self-governance? Do we still believe in representative government? Are we not concerned about the consolidated powers of the federal government? Consider that 250 years ago, our founding fathers fought King George, the English Parliament, and the most powerful military in the world. Many of their fellow citizens thought it was madness to oppose the dictates of an oppressive authoritarian government. Lucky for us, they did not heed the worries of the timid, but chose to fight the right for self-governance through the consent of the governed. The result was a freedom-loving people, confident in their ability to run their own lives and wise enough to be wary of consolidated power. Unfortunately, today we have a tyrannical federal bureaucracy that has its intent the destruction of these liberties by consolidating the powers of the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government destroying the concept of separation of powers. This principle of separation of powers and the consent of govern, of a govern is <clears throat> are essential concepts to ensuring our freedoms. Consider first, federal agencies write the rules, which is a legislative function. Secondly, federal agencies enforce these rules. This is an executive function. Thirdly, if you disagree with these agencies, they will drag you into their administrative court. They will tell you why you're wrong, potentially fine you and or throw you in jail, which is a judicial function. Think about what this might do to one of our farmers or small businessmen, owners who might run afoul of their incomprehensible rules. They will be adjudicated in their administrative courts and be judged without the right to a trial by their peers. King George and the British Parliament could only have wished to have these powers over our citizens. This brings me to my main point. Do we have the capacity for self-governance and enough concern for this concentration of powers? Are we so timid and worried that we'd rather give up our liberties to a corrupt, tyrannical Washington bureaucracy? Are we willing to strive to uphold the American dream of self-rule 
and secure these liberties. I'm sure you've all heard of Elizabeth Paul when at the Constitutional Convention, she seen Mr. Franklin walk by and she says to Mr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us, Mr. Franklin? Mr. Franklin replied, a republic if you can keep it. This is the question before us. Do we continue this process of creating a more perfect union? Article 5 is called for a convention of states to propose amendments to resolve and help the consent of the governed. Again, I want to thank you for the, considering these issues. And most of all, I want to thank all of you for running for public office. And if there's any questions, I thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Other questions for the witness? Representative Brown. Yeah, thanks for your testimony. The uh, One of the comments you made was that the federal agencies write the rules, which is a legislative function. So apparently you think that federal agencies are exceeding their authority. The fact is the Congress of the United States, the legislature of the United States, passed a law called the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act, which governs the process by which federal agencies develop and issue regulations. And so the agencies, when they engage in rulemaking, are engaging in a power that the legislature specifically and directly gave to them to do. So I think your comment in that regard is incorrect. Do you, do you agree or disagree with that? I disagree. I believe that the legislators cannot sit there and transfer powers that they are obligated to have to another branch of the government. Follow up? It's not another branch of the government. It's a law that created. It's the agencies are not another branch of the government. They're all part of the executive branch of the government. The legislature has the power to enact laws, and they can delegate authority. That's within. That's constitutional. So if you don't agree, that's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. Well, I'm entitled to my opinion, and there's quite a few conversations going on now, particularly with the Chevron decision, as exactly where this law should go. And I think that as we look at it over a period of time, the legislators should pass the laws. But what this they've done is they've taken their responsibilities and they've transferred it over to the bureaucratic state. And I think that's a very serious, dangerous thing that has happened, and it needs to be corrected over time. Thank, thank you for your testimony. Thank you. Uh, thank so you I have for the time. Yeah, so I have the time at 159. Contrary to what I said earlier, I think uh, we have uh, three or four more. And my inclination is just to, to work on through those three or four. Uh, you are going to see members leave for two o'clock, and that's just fine. Uh, but uh, let's let's go ahead and get finished. That way nobody has to worry about coming back in a couple hours. Uh, David Kelly is my next on my list. Mr. Kelly, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your patience. Appreciate it very much. And to all the committee members, uh, Chairman Peterson um, and um, uh, Majority, I'm sorry, Minority uh, Representative Humphrey and members, thank you. Um, I'm David Kelly. I'm resident of Ottawa Hills, uh, House District 43. Um, and my testimony is really motivated by the hope that um, my, my children, my family, and your families and all Ohioans will continue to reap the benefits of the great country that we have here. I urge your support of HJR3 because it is apparent that our federal government lacks fiscal discipline leading, discipline leading to unfathomable debt. It has expanded in scope well beyond the constitutional limits leading to excessive regulation of states and their citizens. 
and it enables career politicians and bureaucrats. These problems stem primarily from certain sections of the Constitution and will not be solved by electing other well-meaning people to Congress. There's thus a need for reform, and to determine what reform is needed requires a conversation. Congress could initiate a conversation on these topics and suggest amendments to the Constitution. It has not done so, and it is highly unlikely that it will do so. As an institution, Congress will never acknowledge its shortcomings or overreach, must less voluntarily limit its own power or cede control over the states to their citizens. The drafters of the Constitution anticipated this eventuality and included Article 5 to permit state legislatures to begin a conversation among the states on how to remedy problems with federal governance. As has already been discussed, each of you took an, an oath under the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution um, requires state legislatures to have very, has, state, has few, very few responsibilities under the U.S. Constitution for state legislatures. Aside from managing elections, perhaps the most important responsibility for state legislatures is to call a convention of states under Article 5 to discuss constitutional flaws. It's your duty to start the conversation. And as you conduct these hearings on this resolution, you can expect a lot of fear mongers, hand ringers, knee knockers, and bedwetters to warn that the sky will fall and life as we know it will cease if the Convention of States is called. Now you do not believe them. Conventions among states, though not currently common, have a rich history in the United States. The law of Article 5 has been thoroughly researched by Professor Robert Nielsen, as we've heard, and you heard from one of the preeminent researchers on this topic, Michael Ferris, today. It's well understood what Article 5 uh, lays out. The biggest risk that you can let happen is that Congress will continue to lead us toward economic Armageddon and federal tyranny. Congress will not fix itself. So I ask you to have the courage to do that which only you as state legislators can do. Support HJR3 so that Ohio may join other states in calling a convention of states. Please do your duty and begin the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for testimony. Are there questions for the witness? Seeing none, we appreciate uh, your presentation. Next, we have Teresa Ford. While Teresa's coming up, she is my favorite witness <laughs> because she's from my district. So glad to have you here. Thank you. Please continue. Honorable Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. Good afternoon. I am Teresa Ford from Chillicothe, Ohio. I've been a volunteer for Convention of States for about five months. Thank you for allowing me to present to you today my testimony in favor of House Joint Resolution 3. I stand before you today to urge a vote and passage HJR 3, which focuses on supporting a balanced budget, establishing term limits for federal legislatures, and for limiting the overreaching power and jurisdiction of our federal government. All three of these issues are important as poor decisions by career politicians and greed create instability in our economy, 
business growth, and productive future for our local communities, state, and nation. Luckily, our founding fathers made a path for us to reign in the government through Article 5 of the Constitution. On January the 20th, 2021, an executive order was issued revoking the permit on the Keystone Pipeline, resulting in thousands losing their job. My 67-year-old brother was one of those whose job was affected. He now travels to Brazil to do the same job he was doing in Oklahoma. He has faced hardships such as traveling during the pandemic, added expenses, burden of being away from his wife and family, armed banditos who wanted what he has, and violence, to name a few. We are now seeing high fuel prices normal citizens can't afford, a government wanting to push electric vehicles that are expensive and not reliable in cold temperatures, plus a reliance on foreign countries such as China and the Middle East for oil. This is unacceptable. My father, who is a 93, who's 93 years old, served in Korea aboard the USS Kishwaukee, an AOG-9 tanker. He survived war. He survived the Oklahoma City bombing. He survived three heart attacks and cancer. He worries too frequently about not getting his Social Security checks and payments due to government shutdowns. This, too, is unacceptable. Please help us take back control of our country. What is happening currently is unacceptable. I sincerely hope you will consider and pass HJR3. Thank you for your attention, and God bless America. Thank you for your testimony. Questions for the witness? Representative Skindell. Thank you. You mentioned uh, about, uh, I think, your father being on Social Security. He was a prior witness that uh, advocated that we get rid of the national Social Security system and allow states uh, implement their own Social Security system. Do you support that proposal? I would have to know more about that um, if, it, if it would be productive and it would stay the same without government shutdowns. Too many people are relying on Social Security payments as their only source of income. And you can't have people just sitting there watching the news about government shutdowns because of overspending. Uh, Mr. Chair, follow up. Thank you. Uh, there are some people that believe that the Social Security system is a, a federal government overreach and it shouldn't uh, exist. Uh, so you support uh, uh, continuing the Social Security system? I believe right now it should not be taken away. Like I said, too many people are relying on it as their almost only source of income. Representative Brown with a question. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that uh, one of the issues in this country you have an issue with is reliance on foreign countries such as China and Middle East countries for uh, oil, and we don't produce enough oil. Were you aware that in 2022, the United States was the largest producer of oil in the world, producing 18.9% of all the world's oil? Were you aware of that? I'm aware that most of the oil that has been shut down Look at our gas prices. And you understand gas prices are, continue. Are, Please continue. are a function of 
uh, uh, worldwide markets uh, and OPEC primarily, correct? And not, I, the, not, not the President of the United States. You know, you know that, right? I understand that, but I also understand that the agenda of special interest groups trying to switch over to something that is, is not possible, just, just to go electric, is just not possible. Okay. Um, and no further questions. Thank you for your testimony. You. It's great to have you up here today. Next, we have uh, Katherine Clark. Good afternoon, Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, and Ranking Member Humphrey, and all the rest of the members. I'm. Let me start by saying that I'm sure that Representative Brown and I will disagree a lot. <laughs> <laughs> As the chair and I, the chair disagrees with him on occasion also. <laughs> As legislators, legislators, I'm sure, though, that you have felt the heavy hand of the federal government as it has repeatedly usurped the rights of the state. Maybe even Representative Brown, you felt that. Um, the federal government has most assuredly forgotten that it derives its power from the states. But only because the states have forgotten that it is their job to keep a check on the federal government. When the federal government steps outside their constitutional box, no letter, no letter writing campaign, no demonstration, not even an election is going to put them back into their place. Only the state legislators have the power to control them through constitutional amendments. Today, Washington is like an unruly teenager with absentee parents, access to the refrigerator, keys to the car, and living in a nice warm home. No parents. Well, according to our Constitution, you are those parents. Please show up. I'm standing here before you asking you to be the great statesmen and stateswomen that we need right now, that we needed years ago. I cannot fix Washington, but you can. An Article V Convention of States is for you to enact. It is your responsibility. Indeed, it is your obligation. You find yourself here on this committee in this moment to make history. Lay aside ego, lay aside personal ambitions, lay aside political affiliations. Be great for us. Thank you. Question? Thank you for your testimony. Appreciate you being with us today. Um, next we have Mark Maltby. And while he's coming up, I should say, I apologize, Representative Brown. I, I was having fun, and I have great respect for my colleague and uh, the questions he asks. So I apologize. And just for the record, there are a lot of people who do agree with me. They're just not in this room. <laughs> Chairman Peterson and um, Ranking Member Humphrey and members of the committee, my name is Mark Maltby. I live in Trenton, Ohio. And I'm in Representative Thomas Hall's District 46. 
I'm an owner of a small business in Fairfield, Ohio that turns 100 years old this year. I'm a volunteer with AMAC Action, and we seek your support with HJR3. AMAC Action is an advocacy affiliate of the Association of Mature American Citizens, which has over 2.2 million member conservatives and an alternative to the AARP. Over 90,000 Ohioans are AMAC members, and I'm pleased to present our views and recommendations. We strongly support the calling of the Convention of the States for the purpose of developing a critically needed fiscal responsibility amendment to stop the Congress's runaway spending and explosion of our national debt, as well as the restraint of the federal government's overreach into matters that are the province of the states. I came of age in the late 60s, early 70s, and like many, left college, got a job, got married, had children, and focused on my family and my business and my community. Over the past few years, I've realized that I, as well as many others, had advocated our duty as citizens and allowed our government to stray far from the dictates of our Constitution and Bill of Rights. So I'm here today exercising my duty and privilege to be heard and ask that you use your powers bestowed on you by the electorate of Ohio to save this country by voting to convene a convention of states. Our federal government is failing Americans in many ways, and national security is no exception. The Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution reads, the United States shall protect each state against invasion. Yet we have a federal government that is allowing an unprecedented invasion of our southern border. According to a report from 12.223 from the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, Illegal migrant crossings from 150 countries, and just in 2023, they outnumbered the population of 17 of our states. According to Gordon Chang, a senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute, many of these foreign nationals are special interest apprehensions are concerning since many are single, military-age males coming from countries that dislike America, such as China, over 26,000, Russia, over 12,000, Turkey, over 30,000, Afghanistan, over 6,000, just to name a few. According to former Colonel McGregor, Hezbollah, which is a proxy of Iran, has agents and sleeper cells throughout our nation just waiting to be activated. Many retired military intelligence and counterterrorism experts warn of another attack similar to 9-11. Border Patrol agents are overrun 200 to 1 in processing facilities and are beyond capacity. Not only is this invasion a national security threat, it is creating an economic disaster for our country. The annual cost of the invasion of illegal immigrants will cost the American taxpayer $451 billion per year. So add that to our $33,000 trillion national debt. Social service programs across America are struggling post-COVID to find enough funds to assist underserved Americans that are struggling to pay rent, fight eviction, homelessness, take care of their children, and afford medical care. 50 million people in the U.S. are affected by food insecurity, with children being affected the most. Our system 
such as law enforcement, hospitals, courts, schools, etc., are already stretched thin and not prepared to handle this unprecedented influx. Our government is not prioritizing the needs of our Americans. How many of our constituents are getting free housing, free cell phones, free clothes, free education, free medical care, free airfare or bus fare to any location in America? This border crisis is a complete collapse of the rule of law. Our federal government is aiding and abetting organized crime, resulting in human trafficking and the important transportation of fentanyl. Fentanyl is now the leading cause of death in Americans aged 18 to 45. 60% of unaccompanied alien children are caught by cartels and exploited through child pornography and drug trafficking. It is the largest form of modern day slavery in the world and heartless human tra travesty. Federal government has overreached its authority by trying, tying the hands of border patrol agents, forcing them to stand down and not protect Americans. Immigration is what makes this country great, but we need a legal orderly process that adheres to our immigration laws. Two weeks ago, 25 state governors felt the need to sign a joint statement to support the state of Texas for stepping up to protect American citizens from historic levels of illegal immigrants, deadly drugs like fentanyl and terrorists entering our country. While I was thrilled by their show of support for Texas, a state that has been targeted by the federal government's overreach, the blurred power of the executive branch on steroids, a bloated and power-hungry federal bureaucracy, and a federal government negligent, there were only words. It is well past the tipping point for action, and that action must be a convention of states, which will allow states to wrest back the power bestowed on them by the Constitution and fought for both on the battlefield and in our everyday lives. I thank you for allowing me to speak today considering this issue, and most of all, having the courage and dedication to serve as elected officials. Thank you for your testimony. Other questions for the witness? Seeing none, we're grateful for you being here. Uh, Nancy uh, Skewer, Skewer was our... Oh, we had you first, but uh, the first shall be last. So thank you for sticking with us today. Uh, well, we had a little bit of a time coming through some traffic issues. Somebody had pulled somebody over the side and the entire interstate shut down. So, Okay, I am I'm, I'm not here today under the auspices of Convention of States, even though I support it, but as a concerned citizen, I've been a registered nurse for 41 years, 30 of those years as a critical care nurse. My focus has been on the U.S. Constitution and how it governs education. All of my research can be found on my Substack. My speech today reflects government overreach. And we, and I'm using the royal we, okay, the royal versus the unroyal, the taxpayers of Ohio are working with Act for America to remove CRT, DEI from our schools. We have Right now, 136,795 signatures requesting such, and we're also concerned about parental rights as well. 
Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Thomas, Ranking Member Humphrey, and members of the committee. The U.S. Constitution mandates that education in every state must guarantee constitutional rights beginning with the 14th Amendment, which is providing equal protection under the law. It is the same 14th Amendment under the Due Process Clause that not only safeguards individual rights, but also explicitly protects parental authority to direct the educational upbringing of their children. This principle is further underscored by a statutory law of Congress, affirming that parents bear the primary responsibility for their children's education, while states, localities, and private institutions have the primary, primary role for supporting parental rights. While the Commerce Clause was originally intended to regulate commerce among the states, its scope evolved over time initially to address issues like railroad rates, and later played a pivotal role in combating racial discrimination affecting commerce within the states, as seen in the maintenance of equity requirement. However, a significant, significant change occurred with the Democratic-controlled Congress amending the Commerce Clause under the American Rescue Plan in December of 2021 and introduced the maintenance of equity requirements, compelling the inclusion of critical race theory in educational pro pro programs. CRT, a framework highlighting inherent racial bias in societal institutions, has sparked controversy with its binary classification of individuals as either oppressors or oppressed. The change of the Commerce Clause to promote critical race theory and a diversity, equity, and inclusions raises immediate concerns because it infringes on constitutional rights, particularly those of white students. This change impacts a broad spectrum of educational institutions from daycare centers and K through 12 to military institutions, colleges, and universities receiving federal funds. Compliance is enforced by the implied withholding of federal funds by Congress if CRT or diversity, equity, and inclusion is not integrated into the educational curriculum. Congress is superseding parents' rights and responsibility for their children's education by using funding to support a political ideology. Higher education faces additional oversight through accreditation processes and federal student loan availability. As stated in the opening paragraph, the US Constitution mandates that parents have the ultimate responsibility for education of their children. The state's responsibility is to follow the wishes of the parents as it relates to education. What is fundamental to every citizen in the state of Ohio is best described under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which provides that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That's what's happening in our schools. Government overreach, particularly through the Commerce Clause, should not dictate curriculum. The legislative branch in Ohio must be vigilant in safeguarding individual and parental rights 
and prevent undue interference in educational matters. Notably, concerns extend beyond critical race theory, encompassing other controversial topics which have already found their way into our schools. I want to thank you for entertaining my concerns. Representative Humphreys with a question. Thank and you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and, and I appreciate your comments uh, today, Ms. Skirt. Just, just have a, a quick question for you. Um, one of the questions that was asked earlier to Attorney Ferris was what sorts of topics would be discussed uh, at the by the convention delegates. Um, and one of the things that was said was that, um, you know, the language is vague, but one of the things that probably we should focus on, it, he'll probably correct me afterwards okay. or whatever. Let, let, let me finish and it, it okay. should go through the chair. Um, so one of the things that was discussed was that with regard and with all of this, it should be topics that, um, that should be focused on are ones that um, are realistic. And so one of the questions that I, I, I have for you is out of all the things that we could potentially, if this was to pass, that we could be talking about, we talked about social security, we talked about a whole bunch of other things. It, it, it is it just, the, the question I have is why would critical race theory be a topic that we discuss at a, a at a convention. Like I said, there's lots of other things that we should be talking about, but things that are within books that are really barely even taught in schools anyway, um, to talk about at a convention is kind of just beyond me. And so I, I would like for you to thoroughly explain why you feel like um, the remover of CRT or whatever else should be a conversation at the convention. Thank you so much, ma'am. Okay. If we were going to go ahead and talk about education. Well, excuse me. Let's please, please direct your comments to the chair, please. Oh, I'm Thank sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I think the best way to explain it to you is that this is a, a classic example of government overreach. I can't explain any more to you than that. And the reason why it's more of a, a, a problem is that whether you realize it or not, the Commerce Clause does have uh, four different areas in which the Congress cannot make changes to the Commerce Clause. And one of those, two of those laws which are applicable to this situation in particular is one, this is a non-socioeconomic matter, okay? Education has nothing to do with commerce. The second issue is that they cannot go ahead and change the Commerce Clause uh, if it violates constitutional rights of others, and this clearly does. This is a matter of government overreach. They're going ahead and insisting that we have to have critical race theory, which by the way, is not supported by our constitution. This is racism to its core. You have, you would have, uh, it, it horrifies me to see what's going on in these schools, that they're, what they're doing to our children. Uh, we have a situation in Akron where they had all the white students so, get on their hands and knees. So with apologies, if I could interrupt, 
you want to uh, we, apologize? We are kind of we are kind of far afield from um, right. I know, the, but you wanted to know why. You wanted to know why this is a classic example of government overreach. There Again, are with apologies, we're kind of far afield from the Convention of States issue that this is part of this bill. Uh -huh. uh, there are other bills in the legislature working I understand. dealing with this, and the testimony would probably be better directed for some other bills. I, I understand that, but this is a classic so with example. No, with uh, no further business before us, uh, I appreciate everybody being here. There's extensive written testimony. Uh, we This will conclude the hearing. We are adjourned. Have a great day. And folks, you have been watching a hearing of the Ohio House Government Oversight Committee in consideration of our Article 5 Convention of States Resolution referred to as HJR 3 or House Joint Resolution 3. I'm Rita Peters. I'm Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs with Convention of States Action. And wow, that was a lot. That hearing went on for about three hours on just HJR 3, the Convention of States Resolution. Michael Ferris got us kicked off and he was at his finest today giving expert testimony about Article 5 and the Convention of States process and why it's so important right now at this time in our nation's history for the state legislatures to use their power under Article 5 for a convention of the states to propose amendments on three topics, imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and setting term limits for federal officials and members of Congress. Now, I understand, Producer G, that we should have Mark Meckler standing by with his reaction and some comments on that hearing. And I understand that we're working on getting Regional Director Catherine Zamanik to come on as well to give some commentary until I see them pop up. I will just give a few of my own comments. And number one, I have to say, wow, to our Ohio grassroots team. What an amazing job they did. We knew that they would. They are one of the top teams in the nation as far as being organized, as far as their numbers. They are just always, every time, professional, smart, articulate, organized. They did a great job today and made us all proud. So my hat's off to you, Ohio team. And I looks like we have Catherine Zamanik ready to join now. Catherine, again, is the regional director for the region that encompasses both Iowa, where we had a successful subcommittee hearing earlier today, and Ohio. And again, this was the proponent's testimony committee hearing day. So we didn't hear from any opposition today. That'll come at a later hearing. But Catherine, how are you feeling? What were your thoughts on that three-hour committee hearing we just watched? Wow, just wow. I'm so proud of the Ohio team. And um, they're just so incredibly professional. They had a strategy that they wanted to use. And um, of course, Mike kicked it off. Every time I hear Mike Ferris talk about Article 5, I learn something new. And and um, and I also just uh, know that uh, we're, we're in this fight together. And I'm so grateful 
that he he got us started. So yeah, the the team was amazing today, and um, they you know they knew what their plan was and they went in and executed it. Yeah, it seemed like their testimony was well coordinated. Um, did they spend a lot of time planning it in advance, Catherine? They did. They they've had a, a committee set up for quite some time. They've gotten postponed a couple times to get this hearing. So they they uh, were grateful that they found out the date. They had about a month to plan ahead. And as you heard, uh, you know, we certainly had uh, folks from all walks of life um, with different concerns, and they voiced those concerns. And and I think they uh, they really just uh, were the voice of the people today. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as I watched them testify, I would be willing to bet that there is no other single piece of legislation pending in the Ohio legislature that has this many grassroots supporters who are that knowledgeable about the legislation they're supporting. I just was blown away by their level of knowledge and their professionalism. They really want Ohio to pass this resolution, don't they? They do. They, they have worked so hard. We've gotten so close so many times and they just feel that 2024 is their time. So they're going to do everything they possibly can. And it doesn't end here. As you know, uh, we, we need to hear from the opponents in uh, the same committee and um, and then hopefully we'll get a, uh, another stab at bringing an expert in. That's usually how they do it in Ohio. They may give us the last word um, before they vote, but we're pretty confident that uh, we can get this done in, in this House committee and um, hopefully get it to a full floor vote and then move over to the Senate. Yeah, that's right. Any any word on timing of when that next hearing for opponent testimony will be, Catherine? Well, as you know, it's election time in <laughs> Ohio. And so uh, all these folks will be going home to their, the, the representatives will be going back to their districts if they're running for office. And so Rita, it, it may be a while before we hear the opponent testimony or if the chairman, Chairman Peterson, by the way, who did an excellent job today, yes. uh, if he decides that he wants to bring the committee back to hear the opponent testimony very soon, uh, perhaps it could be early as next week, but we'll watch and see. Okay, Catherine, thanks for joining us today. I know you've got a lot to do, so I'm going to let you get back to it. Please pass on our thanks and congratulations to the Ohio team. Will do. Thanks, Rita. And now we do have Mark Meckler, who is ready to join us. Mark, you watched that whole three-hour committee hearing, as did I, and it was quite fascinating. What's your re initial reaction to what you saw? The grassroots are spectacular. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to, I can't overstate this. I mean, Mike Ferris's opening testimony was fantastic. He did as good a job as I've ever seen him do. He just kind of gets better with age and he's done a great job for us forever, but he was extraordinary. There was the back and forth dialogue for, I don't know what it was, 30 minutes, 35 minutes. Fantastic job in that, answered every question perfectly and beautifully. Master class for me as somebody who testifies professionally. I look at that and I just hope that I can do that well anywhere that I go. 
So seeing that's really inspiring. And then to see the grassroots follow up on it and be frankly just as professional and just as prepared and just as confident as Mike was, was extraordinary. I'd start with Bill Scott, absolutely amazing. I mean, he really got put on the spot. I thought that he got grilled in a somewhat inappropriate way by one of the Democrats on the committee. And I was really worried. These were some difficult questions intended to intimidate and twist him in knots and, and Bill didn't bite. And he handled it perfectly. I would say certainly as well as I could have handled it or Mike Ferris handled it. So that sets a very high bar for the team. And then as you roll out through the team, everybody on the team did an incredible job. Obviously, the team worked a lot in advance to prepare that testimony. I was slacking into our Slack group nationally saying, hey, this is a masterclass. We really need to get this recording. We need actual transcripts of what each person said, what their subject matter expertise was, what their bullet points are for other people to study. Because any team that wants to do a perfect job on their testimony uh, needs to watch this team. It was as good as I've ever seen. And to be clear, there are other teams that have done a fantastic job around the country. We've got some real experts all over the country now to testify. One of the things I noticed, Rita, is the difference between the testimony now and say what the grassroots testimony was like seven or eight years ago. And while I commend those people who were out there doing it seven or eight years ago, this is worlds apart. I mean, it, it's little league. I was little league back then compared to how professional everybody is now. Uh, people are well-dressed well-spoken. They're saying the right things. They're not redundant. Everybody has what they're supposed to say written down. They understand what their particular subject matter is and their particular approach is, and they're hitting those points one by one. I also saw a couple of people do something that I think is very hard to do, is they had written testimony, and they were going through it, and they were saying, this one's already been addressed. This one's, I know you already heard about this. And so they were cutting out testimony as they went, it's very respectful to the committee and not easy to do. You're nervous. You get up there. You're under pressure. Having to change on the fly like that from what you have written is it's a skill. And so watching these grassroots, I was so proud to see. The only low moment, I would say, was the very last person to testify. And she was not one of our activists. And she's somebody who's actually been kind of cantankerous and a problem in the past, tries to use our efforts to further her own efforts. It was unfortunate then we ended on that note. I hope that the committee understands that she was not one of our folks. Yeah, I agree with that. And Mark, I just want to point out that there are some members of that team that probably were here seven or eight years ago, and they just get better every single year. And they, you're right, they are stellar. And, you know, I want to say there was a committee hearing in Congress late last year to talk about the Convention of States efforts. And a member of that committee at one point made the statement that we claim to have grassroots, but they're actually AstroTurf. And I would just love for her to see what happened today in Ohio because, and I want to make this clear for everyone watching, every person that testified with the exception of Michael Ferris, who does work for Convention of States Action, every other person who testified is a volunteer. These are people who left their day jobs today, who traveled, some of them pretty great distances, to be at the Capitol. They're not paid. They are trained because we train them and, and work with them and encourage them and support them. But that's the grassroots folks, and we were so proud of them. 
Mark, I want to ask you a specific question because I thought it was interesting. This question came up. One of the committee members asked Mike Ferris, what could Convention of States do to help resolve the border crisis that is just raging right now on our southern border. And I know that you recently co-authored an op-ed that was published on that very topic. So I just want to give you a chance to explain how Convention of States could be the answer to the border crisis. Yeah, you know, we don't plan it this way, but there's so many things that we can resolve in this country by calling it Convention of States. So we see the border crisis taking place here in Texas. There's a fight about whether Texas has the right to do anything to enforce the border and enforce immigration law. There was a former case that said in a U.S. v. Arizona that said states don't have the right to do that. I think the Supreme Court would, might have a different opinion on that right now, but we can remove all question about this. In other words, you can get into convention under the third prong of our application, which is limiting the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government. You could give concurrent jurisdiction to the states to enforce the borders and enforce immigration law. In other words, if the federal government's not doing it, or even if they are, and the states want to provide backup for that, the states should should and can be specifically given the right to do that. And this is amazing. We have a current crisis. We have 19 states that have weighed in on this resolution. If 15 states join us, we could be literally in convention in 30 days. We could pass an amendment that says the states have this concurrent jurisdiction, and Texas could lock their borders down, and there would be no question about whether they had the right to do this. So we need to get into a convention of states right away. And we're working to get all these governors who are standing up with Governor Abbott. We're, we're working to get them on board and to make sure these legislatures pass the convention of states resolution immediately. Absolutely. Thanks for explaining that, Mark. Thanks for being with us today. It's been a long day of hearings, um, but it's not over yet. Later this afternoon, we do expect to be able to bring you live coverage of a hearing in Rhode Island of all places. There's a House Committee hearing this afternoon there, so we will be streaming that live. And this is kind of breaking news, Mark, that we just found out this afternoon, and that is that the Iowa House Committee, that's the full committee of the subcommittee that we heard this morning, will be having its hearing on our resolution tomorrow. That's quick turnaround. It just came through subcommittee this morning. We brought you that subcommittee hearing live with Rick Santorum. Well, Mike Ferris, who you just saw in Ohio a little while ago, is even now getting ready to fly over to Iowa so he can be there to give expert testimony for that full committee meeting in the Ohio House tomorrow. That'll be at 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern time, and we'll bring you live coverage of that as well. So um, anything you want to say to close us out, Mark? Yeah, I'm really excited about Iowa tomorrow. Usually when they do something that fast, it's because they think they have the votes. I don't want to count them before they're actually counted. But I think tomorrow is going to be a great day. Today, by the way, already a great day coming out of that Ohio sub, or Iowa subcommittee win. That's our first committee uh, vote of the year. So we won that one. So we are 1-0 on the year. It's a great way to start the year. Hopefully we get another one tomorrow in the Iowa full committee in the House. Uh, I think we had a great day today in Ohio. So it is a good year. We've got a whole bunch of states already filed. We've got a whole bunch of committee hearings on tap. Uh, we've had, I think, 28 surge events where we put our grassroots into the state legislatures. Almost 300 co-sponsors signed on around the country. It's been an incredible year already. The momentum's with us. Stick with us. We're gonna have a great year with Convention of States. 
Amen to that. Thanks for watching, everyone. This is Rita Peters with Mark Meckler signing off. Thank you for listening to today's program. For information, please visit www.conventionofstates.com forward slash pod. That's www.conventionofstates.com forward slash pod.